In the 1965 season, we discuss a pivotal season that has controversy galore. Uh, it, is a, it is actually one of the most talked about seasons of all time. Most of it centres around the Melbourne Football Club and two of their biggest figures. Three clubs switch home grounds. The preliminary final is remembered for all the wrong reasons. St Kilda achieve a first. The Tigers start to climb that ladder and we have stats galore to share with you. All this and more coming up after our song. It's the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazman To hear what they all have to say Welcome to the Kick to Kick podcast, the Australian Rules Football History podcast. It takes a deep dive into the history of the league. Um, my name is Tim. Surprisingly, I have a Melbourne supporter, Charlie, over there. I thought you weren't coming back. Uh, I thought about it, but you know, I'm just, uh, I'm still here for the for the dark times as well. They're what make Melbourne supporters Melbourne supporters. <laughs> That's true. Uh, Kevin, the history of football is too good, Tim. I don't want to miss any of it. Yeah, you're right. Spot on. Um, correct answer. Kaz and Moz aren't here. Maybe they did get scared off. Yeah, definitely. Um, but we, we will hear from them throughout. Um, now, hello, listeners in Norway, ah. Argentina, and Poland. Excellent. And the US states of Minnesota, Connecticut, and New Jersey. Fantastic. Yeah. We're all over it. All over it. It's good. We, we, we've got to pop pins in this map somehow. We do. I did have a scratch map at some stage. Yeah, the map's looking pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty solid. Um, so let's get to some history to start with. 65. 65. Now, the song of 65, the Beatles were number one for 23 weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but the song I chose was an Australian classic, The Seekers, I'll Never Find Another You. Oh. No, number one for three weeks. I'll tell you what, um, that is one of my old man's all-time favourite songs. Really? This, this CD, you know, this tape, uh, I think was worn out in the car when we were growing the up. Cassette. Yeah, the cassette. <laughs> Oh, it's a ripper. Judith Durham and the Seekers. Yeah. Jeez, they're good. Love it. 65 is a heyday. So what else What else happened in 65? Ah, uh, well, a few things happened in 65, yeah. As one would expect. Yeah, big year. Great year. <laughs> uh, so on the 20th of January, we had LBJ, Lyndon B. Johnson, sworn in for a full term as President of the United States, over, uh, taking over from JFK last year. Yeah. No, two years ago. JFK had blown away. Yes. Uh, on the 30th of January, we had the state funeral of Sir Winston Churchill taking place in London with the lar- largest assembly of dignitaries in the world until the 2005 funeral of Pope John Paul II. Interesting. Um, on the 21st of February, we had Malcolm X, the uh, human rights activist, assassinated in New York City. On the 2nd of March, The Sound of Music premiered at the Rivoli Theatre in New York City. Good to yeah. On the 8th of March, 3,500 United States Marines arrived in Da Nang in South Vietnam, becoming the first American ground combat troops in Vietnam. So the war had already started, obviously. There was an air battle, but like, uh, things happening. Operation Rolling Thunder. Yes, Operation Rolling yeah. Thunder. Yeah, I mean, exactly. look, I'm looking at the lyrics to We Didn't Start the Fire. Yeah, oh, do they mention Six, Operation well, Rolling 65 Thunder? 65 is birth control, Ho, Ho Chi Minh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're just ticking the yeah. song off. Yeah. Um, on the 18th of March, we had Alexei Leonov, 
um, leaving Voskhod 2, the spacecraft, for 12 minutes and became the first person to walk in space. A cosmonaut. Yes. On the 31st of March, Merle Thornton, uh, Thornton, Thornton and Rosalie Bognar chained their ankles to the front bar of the Regatta Hotel in Brizzy yep. to protest against the Queensland liquor laws that banned women from pubs. Yeah. Great photos of that. And one. there's a bar named after them. Is there? That, that, that bar is named after After them. Oh, fantastic. On the 5th of April, we had the 37th Academy Awards. My Fair Lady won eight awards, including Best Picture and Best Director. Yeah, and Rex Harrison won Best um, Oscar, the Oscar for Best Actor. Big year for musicals, Timmy. Mary Poppins also took home five Oscars. Julie Andrews won for Best Actress, and uh, the Sherman Brothers received two Oscars, including Best Song for Chim Chim Cheree. That was the best song. Yeah. Okay. I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I guess it's okay. Yeah. yeah. On the 28th of April, uh, Robert Menzies announced that the country would substantially increase its number of troops in South Vietnam. This was supposedly at the request of the Saigon government, but it was later revealed that Menzies has asked the leadership in Saigon to send the request at the behest of the Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the next day, we announced it was sending uh, the infantry battalion to support the South Vietnam government. So, yeah, all happening. On the 25th of May, Muhammad Ali knocked out Sonny Liston in the first minute of the first round of their championship rematch God, with he... the Phantom Punch, they called it. So it was a fix. Um, yeah, they, the fix well, that's in. what they were saying. You know, there's that famous photo of him standing over him, like oh, screaming that, that? at him. Okay. Yeah. Um, on the on September the 9th, in a bit of a other sporting news, we had Sandy Koufax playing for the LA Dodgers, pitching a perfect game in baseball against the Chicago Cubs. The opposing pitcher, Bob Henley, allowed only one run, one unearned run, and only one hit, making this game the lowest hit game in baseball history. Wow. And it's Koufax's fourth no-hitter in as many seasons. And uh, Lightfingers won the Melbourne Cup this year. Good. Yeah. You want to hear about a couple of people who were born? Indeed. I, I... Only sticking with the Aussies, and I've gone... It's a very short list this year I've gone with. So I've gone on the 2nd of June, we had the twins Steve and Mark War, the cricket players. On the 4th of June, we had Mick Doohan, the motorcycle racer. And on the 21st of September, David Wenham, the actor. Kiwi or Australian? Australian. Okay. Yeah. We're keeping it nice and short there, short and sharp. Yes. All right, 1965. Some would say a pivotal year. Yes. In the... uh, the Annals of history. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you've got Melbourne's downfall, but then you've got Carlton and Richmond who are kind of on their way up. So the shift in power is definitely evident. It's all happening, year. isn't it? Yeah. We've had some very... And with clubs also beginning to sh- shift from their... Heartland. Their heartlands. It's sort of, you know, be- becoming a different layout of, of the mm. way the VFL works almost as well. And also taking a bit of power back from those cricket clubs that were uh, yes. taking all their... All their monies. All their monies. Because it's football season, and that's the reason it's the time of the year that we love. Um, all right, so 1965, Citizen News, it's the first year that stats are available. Hey! So all, if, on AFL Tables, that awesome website, you can get <laughs> kicks, goals, handballs, marks. So anytime you hear someone say that's, you know, the most stats, most marks of all time, 
most kicks in a game ever, they're referring to between now and 1965. So they don't mean ever, they mean as long as stats have been around. Which generally you would say probably means ever, because before this, before this, you know, we're not... It wasn't a high disposal sort of game, was it? We don't know. We don't I mean, Hayden Bunton dominated. He, that's true. You know, that's if he had true. stats on his games. Yeah, 60 disposals. Yeah, who knows? Let's make it up. Let's say <laughs> he did, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's really interesting. So you'll hear us say more stats and we'll point out quite a few. Um, three teams moved home ground in 65 yes. as well. Um, this would begin a suburban ground rationalisation process that would eventually end 40 years later in 2005, which saw all Melbourne teams based at either the MCG or yeah. Docklands. Uh, Victoria played two interstate matches against South Australia during the season. The first one at the MCG, Victoria won 130-72. And then the return match in, Austra- in South Australia was an absolute nightmare for Victoria. They lost to South Australia 12-11-83 to three goals, one nineteen. You're kidding. Croatia smashed us. Absolutely smashed Talk us. Talk about your home ground advantage. Yeah. Um, we've also got some Dacos dispatch news. Oh, what's happening All over right, there? So Peter Dacos' sister, Ellen, was born. And also, uh, there's an anecdote in his story, in his autobiography, or biography. Um, Peter tried to follow his dad to a game, so he tried to follow his dad to the Fitzroy South Melbourne game at Brunswick Street Oval. But his dad didn't realise he was following him, and Peter, and Peter got lost, and the police found him wandering around and took him to the station where his mum picked him up later on. <laughs> So maybe that's officially the first game that uh, Peter Dacos ever went to. God, well, if he first, made it, I'm first game he ever tried, tried to, to go, go to. to. Yeah. <laughs> yes, um, some new umpires this season as well. We have uh, umpire John Gambetta. I don't think any relation to Jazz oh, Leagues. That's a shame. Raymond Montgomery and Peter Shields. Okay. New umpires for us. All right, Charlie, let's get stuck into this season. Let's do it. Bottom to top. Bottom to top, so starting right down the bottom with four wins and 14 losses, the boys from Glenferry, Hawthorne, unfortunately. So coached this year by Graham Arthur, captained by John Peck. Uh, what was happening down at Glenferry, Timmy? All right, so for the entire 1965 season, Glenferry Oval was an absolute quagmire from end to end. Well, hang on, that's, that's surprising. I mean, mm. yeah. Um, the club had actually looked hard at relocating, um, with suggestions being like Mitcham uh, and even Doc Ferguson said, hey, maybe we should wait, move to this new ground being built at Waverley, which would happen. Yeah. Um, eventually, a new agreement would be reached, which saw the Hawthorne Council give them a 21-year lease on Glenferry, and Hawthorne assumed full management of its home ground and thus ruling out any move from the area in the foreseeable future. Uh. Work also began immediately on increasing the ground's capacity, improving the playing surface. Yeah, well, as we as we um, we've talked about, like they they're really hemmed in on all sides. There, mm. they didn't have a lot of room to grow. But fixing the surface, I mean, even though it's a long, thin ground, fixing the surface would make the biggest difference. How do you, is it drainage? It's usually drainage. Isn't it's it? got to be, doesn't it? And it must be. Well, that whole area is quite low lying in terms. So, like, it's prone to flash flooding, sort of sort of area. So, yeah, interesting. Mm. Interesting. Uh, things got off to a shaky start for Hawthorne with a 37-point loss in round one to Carlton. And then round two, things went from bad to worse. They had a 94-point loss to Essendon. Not only did they lose, but there's also a very interesting story that happened between uh, Graham Arthur and Gary Young. Do you want to tell us about that? Yes. Quickly? So uh, that was round two. Well, yeah. Was, so yeah. Gary Young got a hard knock. We do, do we know who, the, who he got the knock from? No. No. So he got... 
copped a hard knock early in the game. Uh, I mean, Graham Arthur uh, stood over him and said, you know, get up, you weak bastard, uh, basically. And, and um, so Young sort of got up and did his best to continue, but eventually had to leave the ground and go to hospital. Yep. Uh, and it turned out that he actually had a perforated bowel and peritonitis, yeah. which are both... Thing, both of those things separately are life-threatening and he had both of them so maybe not so weak yeah in that situation yeah it's actually pretty tough playing on with <laughs> yeah, that isn't it yeah um geez i just imagine arthur would have felt terrible after that surely it's just a coach trying to inspire his team yeah um so uh with the shaky start that they made the club decided graham arthur had to go back onto the field had to be captain coach so he was back for round three and John Peck handed back the captaincy with good grace. Although all parties later admitted it was it had a poor effect on team morale as the Hawks were crushed by 10, 10 goals by Collingwood at Victoria Park. Yeah. Never a good result. Uh, they had a 37-point win over a lowly Fitzroy in round four before losing badly to Richmond by 45, so very yo-yo-ish at the moment. Another win over fellow cellar dwellers, Footscray by seven points, ushered in an eight-game losing streak that began with a 77-point loss to Geelong. The round nine loss to North Melbourne was John Peck's 203rd game, which was a new Hawthorne record, breaking Roy Simmons' record of 202 games. In round 13 against Essendon, Graham Arthur's frustrating year took a further turn for the worse, and he was suspended for four games for striking, despite a spotless record for over 200 games. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he can't have been far behind um, John Peck if he's, you know, 200 games. No. Also in this game, Alan Joyce, future coach, would cop two weeks for striking. The Hawks won their return games against both Fitzroy and Footscray, but that was all. In the round 15 win over Fitzroy, umpire John Gambetta awarded staggering 122 free kicks at, at better than a free kick a minute. Stop it. The Lions received 70 free kicks to the Hawks, 52. Obviously didn't help Fitzroy's cause because they lost. But yeah, 122 free kicks. You would just be losing your mind if that happened. As these a spectator days. or a player? Both. Yeah. Is a spectator almost worse, you'd <laughs> yeah. think. That's outrageous. <laughs> In a remarkable battle of percentages with those teams around them, so Fitzroy and Footscray, the Hawks lost out after all three traded places on the ladder between 12th and 10th throughout the last six rounds. So they went up and down. And come the end of round 18, it was Hawthorne who collected the wooden spoon by 1.62%. Yeah. They'd beaten only two teams. And the percentage of 68.89 was the side's lowest for 13 years. Unbelievable. Coming from a, a flag four years ago. Yep. It's amazing how many teams taper off really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, it kind of... it It's it's crazy, but it also makes a lot of sense. Like, you're priming yourself for this win. Often it's guys guys who are at the end plus young guy, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. Strange. Interesting. Mm. Um, so, who do you reckon the best and fairest was for the Hawks in 65? Arthur. Did he do it as a captain when we came back? No, he didn't. It was David Parker. Oh, nice. Parker. Yeah, Parko. And a league goal kicker? Peck. Pecky with 56 this year. Nice. So that's his fifth year in a row as leading goal kicker for the Hawks. And for the league, I think, as well. Yes, quite possibly. Yeah. Well, not not fifth year in a row for the league, but no might, third year in a row for the league could be for the league. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Yes. So there we go. So moving up the ladder, as you just mentioned, there were a few teams battling it out for that wooden spoon. 
and Fitzroy just missed out on it, coming in at 11th with, again, uh, four wins, 14 losses, but that slightly higher percentage of 70.5. Mm, so some wins on the board. Yes. Captain, coach. So this year... Ooh, there's a change. Kevin Murray has gone to East Perth. Oh, yes, of course. So this year, coached by... So, coached by Bill Stephen, taking over from Kevin Murray. Yes. And captained by Ralph Rogerson, taking over from Kevin Murray. So there you go. Yeah, that's a big loss. I mean, especially having no no wins in the last two seasons. The one win they did have, he wasn't there. No, yeah. Um, And he'll be disappointed that he missed in round two because after 27 successive defeats, Charlie... Fitzroy finally won a game. <laughs> Unbelievable. Against the Dogs at Western Oval, or Witten Oval, Western Oval. Uh, Fitzroy, had a few poor, Fitzroy had few poor players as Fitzgerald, Beattie and Hayes got on top of the Dogs. Uh, they kicked three goals to two in an exciting last quarter to hold on for a four-point win. And let me tell you, there were wild celebrations back at Brunswick Street Oval. Oh, I bet there were. Uh, what followed was another seven losses in a row. But then, in round 10... At Brunswick Street Oval again, the visiting Swans got out to a five-goal lead at half-time, but the Lions looked, and then the Lions looked like their ordinary selves. But with new coach Stevens swinging some positional moves on the forward line, the Lions started to take control of the game. The last quarter was up and down. The Swans steadied and led by 13 points late in the game, but goals to Gary Lazarus and Peter Woods got them back in it. And moments before the siren, Peter Wood kicked another goal to put the Lions in front with just over a minute to play, and they earned their second win of the year. Nice. That's not all. Round 13, they did it again. Against the Dogs again. And even first half, the Lions held the Dogs to two goals in the second half to win, this time by 13 points, so their margins are creeping out. They then travelled to Coburg to take on North Melbourne. We'll talk about that soon. Yes. In round 16, Norm Brown and Gary Lazarus kicked three goals each to lead the Lions to a one-point victory. Gary Lazarus kicked the winning goal, which was a screw kick over North Melbourne ruckman Bob Bob Pascoe from a scrimmage as the siren went. Nice. Love that. Remarkable win. The end of season report stated that it is our belief that the year 1965 has been one of tremendous satisfaction and progress on and off the field. So things are looking up, maybe. Okay. Um, Sad news for the club as well. Gerald Brosnan passed away, age 87. Yeah, wow. Former captain. Premiership captain. Premiership, two-time premiership Two-time captain. premiership yeah. captain. Should have been three-time. He should have kicked that goal Absolutely. in 1903. <laughs> Damn him. <laughs> really holding on to that one. So Kevin Murray didn't win the best and fairest this year because he's not there. No, that's not. I mean, he tried, but no, he couldn't <laughs> quite do it. So who do you reckon it was? Um, Peter Wood. It was Norm Brown. Okay. And lead and goal kicker. Sorry, Gary Lazarus. Gary Lazarus yeah. with 32. Uh, he's the, uh, the reigning McCracken name award winner. It's, it's a great well. name. When you're hearing about a late goal and it's Lazarus, yeah. I mean, it just it writes itself. If only he'd scored it from the pit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so let's move up. Move, moving on up. Next spot, 10th on the ladder, Footscray again with 14 wins, 4 losses, and... A much well, much healthier percentage than those two. Still, pretty meager percentage of seventy-seven point one. Yes, we have the tricolours, the mighty doggies. Now, when you say Footscray again, they're actually three places lower than last year. Uh yes, yes. I don't know why you said again. Uh, 
No, neither do I. No, okay. Sorry, a bit of a slip of the tongue. It just feels like that's where they are. No. Okay, yeah. um, some debutantes were Alan Mannix, Peter Castricum, Dallas Patterson, and David Thorpe. Okay, David Thorpe, uh, originally recruited from Northwood Scray. Uh, Thorpe was a classical mover in the centre with great skills and plenty of courage. He won Footscray's Best in France in 1968 and 71 and captained the Bulldogs in 1973 before being cleared to Richmond, where he played in the 1974 Premiership side. Later played in the VFA with Yarraville and Port Melbourne. Okay, so this year, coached by Teddy Whitten, of course, captained by Teddy Whitten, of course, uh, what else is there to say? Yeah. Um, after four successive losses to start the year, the Doggies finally got a win in round five against South Melbourne. Despite only scoring two points in the final quarter, they held on by one point. Merv Hobbs led the goal kicking with three. Halfway through the season, the Dogs had only won one game and had lost eight. Five of those losses were by seven points or less. So they were in games, they just couldn't win them. They couldn't, couldn't get them done. Um, round 11 was win number two against North Melbourne. They let their intentions known early with seven scoring shots to one at quarter time, yet six of those were behinds. They managed to keep a buffer of a few goals throughout to run out two goals winner, two goal winners. Round 12 was a dark day against Geelong. Uh, Doggy scored one goal, 8-14. Goal scored by, the only goal scored by Graham Ion, uh, and it's still their lowest ever score till this day. Yep, well, you'd hope so. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> all the other clubs lowest scores of the 1800s, like the 1890s. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and we're talking 60s. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Uh, around 12, and look, lowest league v- VFL score. I'm sure they've, they've got a VFA score that's probably worse if we go right back. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All clubs do. Three points. Yeah. 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 Round 16, they won their first away game of the year at Lakeside Oval, taking down the Swans for a second time, this time by 14 points. Uh, and then they had a final round win to finish the season off on a high, coming from behind to re- the, beat the reigning Premier Melbourne by three points at the MCG. The hero of the day was, dog- was Dogs follower Kevin Stevens, who took big marks in the forward line and kicked two goals to help the Dogs avoid the wooden spoon. There we go. Yeah. Yep, that's what they needed. They needed those points. Yeah. They needed those percentage points. So who was best and fairest for the Doggies this year, do you reckon? Teddy. No, it was Johnny Schultz again. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Raining Brown, not Raining Brownlow medal winner. Brownlow medal winner, yes. And uh, league goal kicker, who do you think? Kevin Smith. Uh, Kevin Stevens. No, Merv Hobbs. Uh, Hobbsy. With 24, so pretty low. Yeah. Pretty low yeah. there. So climbing up the ladder to ninth spot with a team that didn't win four and lose 14. No, they won five and lost 13. <laughs> it is North Melbourne uh, in a... In a new place. Uh, yes, it's doing, relocated. Yeah. So, so, what, so what was going on there? Can okay. you tell us about that? So, um, like other clu- all clubs, they wanted more control of their playing facilities. They wanted better stuff. Cricket clubs were always taking more money, so they sought better place, and they wanted somewhere where they could have more people watch. Yep. So they moved their training and playing base to Coburg City Oval and signed a seven-year lease with the Coburg Council in April of 65. That's a fair move. Yeah, and then, look, there was actually a motion at the end of 64 for Coburg VFA Club to merge with North. Ah. But the VFA uh, blocked this and actually supported the club in still fielding a team in 65. Coburg played there, played at the home ground of Port Melbourne for the whole season because North, North Melbourne had their ground. Uh, so that's quite interesting. So, um, yeah, obviously moving to Coburg, different location. And I think... One of the things Alan Aylett talks about in his book is that North Melbourne couldn't grow anymore. 
it was quite industrial. I mean, you've been to yes, Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there's not a lot of people living there, so getting to games isn't as easy. No. Whereas, as a grow- Coburg was a growing area, more people could come and watch. More so residential. More okay, people, yeah. More equals more money. Yeah, basically. Uh, and not not also pegged in on a couple of sides by other VFL yeah, exactly. teams yep. as well. Yeah. Yep. Um, I wonder what that meant for their recruiting zone. Not sure. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Captain coach? Yes, so this year coached by Alan Killigrew again, uh, captained by Noel Teasdale, obviously, who took over from Aylett in the middle of last year after Aylett got injured. Yeah. Uh, Round one, the opening of a new era at the club at Coburg was a disaster. (laughs) The weather was rubbish, which meant that a a low crowd of uh, 13,774 turned up, which was smaller than all but one of their 1964 crowds at Arden Street. Uh, and they started the game with six straight behinds, which kind of summed up their season. It took them a oh, while really? to get started. The Swans won this game by 10 points. Round five was the Roos' first win of the season, which was uh, they started with an eight-goal first quarter, setting up a big win over the Lions. Noel Teasdale, the dominant player on the ground here. Round nine, uh, John Dugdale, the hero in the win over the Hawks, playing all over the ground and making the game-saving move. So late in the game, he was in the defence and he cleared a ball that looked like it was going to be the game-winning goal for Hawthorne. Uh, North held on to win by three points. Round 10, a record crowd for the game... Sorry, a record crowd for the Coburg of 21,626 showed up to see the Pies take on the Roos. And they saw a pretty good match as the Roos took it right up to Collingwood but couldn't quite get the win they wanted. Round 13... Uh, was the win they were looking for coming up against the Norm Smithless Demons. Yes. A team they hadn't beaten since the 50s. Um, so the Demons, and we'll talk a lot about this yes. later. Yeah. Uh, the Demons visited Coburg for the first time and the Roos took advantage of the Demons' disarray, starting with six scoring shots to one. Then they had five goals in the third quarter to see them build up a big enough lead uh, to win the game and North's Frank Good kicked six goals which is the VFL record for Coburg Oval oh cool really oh they only played one season there. yeah yeah exactly so there you six go six goals is the, is the record it's for the VFL yeah. nice uh, round 15 an unpredictable North Melbourne accounted for Carlton in a tough slogging game played in deplorable conditions at Coburg Oval uh, at the start of the game field umpire Ron Brophy took one, love, one look at the cow paddock conditions and shuddered they were so bad he couldn't bounce the ball he just threw it up uh, the Blues held a six-point lead at halftime and they scored only one point in the whole second half as the Kangaroos dominated North Teasdale. Despite strong opposition from John Nichols, it was the inspiration for North. Bernie McCar- McCarthy was unbeaten all day at centre-half forward. John Dugdale defended superbly while North showed a lot of talent and were capable of surprising teams higher on the ladder as uh, evidenced by this. All goals were scored at the same end of the ground. Really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this is also Carlton's lowest ever score against North Melbourne. Let me tell you what that score was now. Uh, it was five goals two, 32. But at halftime, there were five goals one. Yeah, wow. Okay. Yeah. What a day. What a day. What a season. What a place to be. Yeah. You can see why it didn't last. No. Um, <laughs> finally, in round 18, Noel Teasdale was a hero again, leading the Roos with 24 kicks, nine marks, six handballs. There's some stats. As the Roos <laughs> held the Tigers goalless in the opening half on their way to a five-goal win. Um, on reflection, the move to Coburg was a waste of time. An average crowd of 13,146 came to home games, which was down from the 16 and a bit thousand that came to Arden Street. Yeah, there you go. So 
there's rust on supporters who don't want to don't want to travel who've yeah. got their nose out, out of joint about the club moving I yeah. guess yeah. and it sounds I mean all grounds seem pretty deplorable at the moment but this just you know, sounds horrible yeah not ideal especially games where they you know teams aren't scoring in quarters yeah, yeah. no nah. ridiculous so who was best and fairest for the Coburg Kangaroos this year <laughs> Uh, Teasdale Teasdale It yeah. certainly was yeah. And Frank Good Was the lead goal kicker With 38 oh. So uh, Across the other side Of the Yarra We had South Melbourne Next yes. up on Well the north road. are really north now Aren't they Yeah In Coburg It's really north of the <laughs> It's like super north Yeah, yeah exactly super north <laughs> So yeah South Melbourne In 8th spot With a Very even 9 wins 9 losses So we've really jumped up From the doldrums of the Even Latter-day. Stevens even Stevens, 89.4%. So 65, uh, those Swannies were coached and captained by Bobby Skilton. So, yeah, Bob Skilton taking over from Noel McMahon as coach this year as well yeah. as his captaining duties. So Noel McMahon didn't seek reappointment. Yeah. He decided to step away. I'm guessing he probably went to the country. Yeah, <laughs> as they all do. Yeah. Some debutantes for you. John Long, Noel Orange, Hayden McAuliffe. And Kevin Pedrotti. Oh, okay. Round one, the Swans were the first team to travel to Coburg Oval that we just talked about uh, in that deplorable day and took on North. They slogged through the mud and the slush slightly better than the Roos to record a 10-point win. Um, Round three, the Blues were then well beaten by a committed South Melbourne team that came from behind with a barnstorming seven-goal third quarter and held on to win by 15 points uh, before they had their hearts broken by the Demons with a last-minute goal. In the next round. Round six, they beat the Bombers at Lakeside Oval. Bobby Skilton, 26 disposals, 18 kicks, eight handballs, two marks, six goals. Hey, six goals. Six goals. I mean, love a stat, Mm. love a stat. Yeah. Here we go. I mean, the stats are good by themselves and then just chuck six goals on top of that. Uh, The Swans win over the Hawks and Cats in round eight and nine were the first consecutive wins the club had achieved since 1960. Uh, In the round eight game, Skilton recorded 42 disposals. 30 kicks and 12 handballs, his highest for the season. Massive. Uh, they look to make it three in a row against the Lions, but Skilton failing a last-minute fitness test uh, wasn't available and probably as a result they lost to the Lions by a goal. Mm-hmm. He definitely would have made the difference. Uh, with the costly losses in the middle of the season, they crashed out of final success uh, contention but won three of their last five. Round 14, Bob Skilton and Bob Kingston kicked four goals each as the Swans beat the Blues uh, at Princess Park. Fun fact, they won't win again there until 1992. No, really? Yep. Wow. Uh, round 15, they beat the Demons with Bob Skilton dominating in the middle. They won by 39 and they defeated Magpies in the final round at Lakeside Oval with their blistering pace too good for the Pies, winning by 16 points. Really interesting season for the Swannies there because they were losing to the very the cellar dwellers yep. and beating a couple of the top teams. Yeah, well, very dependent on whether Skilton was in the side. Oh, absolutely. Well, their last four seasons before this, they've been second last or last. Yeah. So they've moved up to eighth with yeah. a pretty decent amount of wins as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was very tight at the top, wasn't it? So, yes. Yeah, interesting from South there. So who do you reckon their best and fairest was, Tim? Uh, Mr. Skilton? It happened to be Mr. Skilton. Oh, so was he captain, coach, captain best, coach, and, fairest, best and fairest, leading goal scorer? He was not leading oh. goal scorer. It'd be really close. It was Ron, Ron Kingston with 48. I'd love to say, in fact, let's see if we can find out how many he did kick in 65. Um, uh, he kicked 26 goals, 32. Okay, so not that close then. But still, pretty impressive. Yeah. (laughs) Unbelievable. 
Uh, so there you have it. So moving up to seventh place on the ladder, Timmy. Seventh place on the ladder. A name I haven't said this this early in a podcast in quite a while. Since 1953 season. <laughs> it is Melbourne. Yeah. Unfortunately. Lots to digest here yes. as well. So strap in. So ten wins, eight losses, uh, and a percentage of 96.2. Um so yeah, I, I'm a bit I'm a bit shell shocked. I don't know what to say about Melbourne that's the, this that's year. That's the right reaction to have, I think. Yeah. So this year, coached by Norm Smith. Yep. Captained by Hassaman. Hassaman. So we the, will talk about Barassi. We certainly when will. we get to Carlton because that's a whole other story. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, but vice captain there taking over. Yep. Um, yeah. He's, Interesting year from the days. So here's some debutants for you: Hugh Brommel mm-hmm. and Stan Elves. Stan Alves, yes. Okay, here we are. The story of Stan Alves. Alves was one of the most brilliant wingers of his era after Melbourne recruited him from Edithvale and Aspendale. Joining the club after its golden era had ended, Alves was a shining light as the demons deteriorated. He'd actually tried out in 1964, but Coach Norm Smith had asked him to leave the track, saying he was running around like a chook with its head chopped off and disrupting the session. But he persisted, even though Smith thought he was too small, too light, and not strong enough. In spite of that, he went on to win Melbourne's Best and Fairest in 1972 and 74, and was a worthy skipper from 1973-76. He also represented Victoria three times. At the end of 1967, he he was disenchanted and decided to retire. Melbourne wanted to swap him to Carlton for Robert Walls, and when he... When he objected, there were five other clubs who expressed interest. He opted for North Melbourne because of the chance to play in the grand final. Uh, all right, round one was the, uh, the Demons' first match as the away team at the MCG as the Tigers were now co-tenants. Yes. Um, a five-goal to nil. Second quarter gave the Demons a comfortable win, ruining the Tigers' housewarming party as they ran away victors in rainy conditions. This was to be Norm's last game and win over his brother, Len. Mm-hmm. The ledger sitting at Norm 4, Len 3, 2 draws. It's so close. So he got it? there in the end. Len had him for quite a while. Unbelievable considering, you know, the difference in the teams that the two brothers were coaching as well. Absolutely. Um, round two, the president's wife hoisted the flag before the Demons tried to kick themselves out of the game. They kicked 1-7 in the opening quarter. Uh, this saw North get out to a lead, which extended to 15 points by the third quarter. So Norm threw John Lord to full forward, and within minutes he had outmuscled North fullback Graham Ryan and kicked two goals from Marks. Melbourne did enough in the last quarter to hold on for an eight-point lead. Round three was the Demons' last ever game at Brunswick Street Oval. Seven goals in the second quarter saw them open up the game and record a 49-point win. Then a win against South uh, saw them kick a goal with 17 seconds left. Hassaman gave them a three-point win. Hassaman again. You clutch. Um, Although there was some controversy as footage showed him dropping the mark. Oh. Yeah. Uh, The following week in Geelong, they came out as the only undefeated side with a 14-point win in the wet this is followed again, followed by another lucky win, this time by two points against Collingwood in a hard slog. Then they beat the Dogs by four points, uh, the Barassi-led Blues by 37, uh, and in the process taking home the inaugural uh, Ronald Dale Barassi RD Trophy. Barassi Trophy, yeah. yeah. Where's that? We're going to need to pull that out, I reckon. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, and suddenly they were on an eight-game 
winning streak. I mean, who did everyone, no Barassi. Everyone would have been rolling their eyes, just clicking. going, "Oh my yeah. god, it's them! They're, they're they're still doing it. It's ridiculous. Nothing um, can stop them." And I didn't even mention that Carlton game. They the the tactics they took against Carlton as well, where Norm knew how nervous Ron would be, so he held the team in the rooms for ages. Yes, and the umpire had to come had to and come ask him like three yeah, times. To come so and get him. like Barassi was on edge and on edge, and then like all that. Pressure was gone. They were doing like lane work in the rooms under yeah. underground. Yeah. yeah, love it. And then they went out and, and tagged Brassy and took him out of the game. And yeah, love it. Love that tactical mind game. Yeah, um, very clever. So eight games in a row, uh, and then they had a big loss to St Kilda. Actually, I think Norm Smith's biggest ever loss to that that stage, which was sixty one points. I yes, uh, for, yeah, sixty one points. The first very first ten goal defeat of, of his coaching career at Melbourne. Yeah, and then Essendon. Knocked them off as well. So know? I think, sorry, we should conf- uh, clarify that. I think he did do, um, I think there was a worse loss when he was um, captain coach at Fitzroy. At Fitzroy. Yep, yeah. Yep, yeah, good point. Yeah, so losses to S- St Kilda and Essendon saw things take a turn. Uh, round 11 saw them steady the ship with a win over the Hawks before things really escalated. So they had round 12, there was a loss to Richmond and then the following week changed everything. Yes, it certainly did. So firstly, we have the hangover. So last year we talked about Norm Blue, uh, Don Blue, who took offence at some comments that after the St Kilda game that, that Norm Smith had said about him being favouring favoring one side. Yes. And so Don Blue took uh, decided to take him to court. At this time, yeah. yeah. So that happened over the summer. Norm Smith asked the club to support him and the club basically said, no. Nah. You said those comments, even though Jim Cardwell had ticked off what he said and yep. said it could be played on 3OW. Um, following the Richmond game, um, Jim Cardwell asked Norm Smith to come in on the Wednesday following the Richmond game. I spoke to Len and I said, I think I'll offer my resignation. And Len said to me, don't be a fool, you owe it to the boys to keep coaching. And I felt that this was so. And Norm was convinced he was going to be fired. Yeah. His brother Len said, no, no, just go in there and accept what they're going to say. Be nice and calm about it. Um, so he went in and he kind of agreed to everything. The committee said they wanted his support. Yeah. And he said he wanted the committee wanted Norm to pled, basically pledge his allegiance to the committee. To the to, players. To the players. Yeah. 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 But, exactly. But they gave him no timeline on this. Well, that that's and yeah, that's where it seems like there's some the, there's some yeah exactly. This is where the time the the story kind of changes depending on which side yes. you're on. Yes. So everyone agrees with the facts up to this stage. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he went about his Thursday night training as normal. Um, he was, they were preparing to play North Melbourne, so he didn't think it appropriate. Or you know, you wanted no. to bring it up before a game when you're focusing on that game. And the and the story from from people on his side as well was saying that he was having small conversations with people around the around the club, not a full you know group. This is what's going on, but you know this is you know you know, you all know I've had my issues with the committee before before, but that's all in the past. Blah blah. He's saying yeah. this stuff, yeah. sort of anecdotally yeah, to he different did, he people. He did bring the players in to talk about the game. And, yes, and, and but game no, style. yeah. Uh, after they broke up, Cardwell asked some of the players, you know, what had been spoken about. Yes, none of them mentioned anything about the committee. So du- yeah, so Duffy and Cardwell both went down to the, to the rooms to ask. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this, they were incensed at this. Like, yeah. how, this is what you promised to do. You didn't do this. So they called an emergency meeting the next day. They night. didn't confront... Uh, sorry, at this stage, they hadn't confronted Smith about it. No, he they, thought everything was no, fine. No, he thought everything was fine. Yep. So they went away and had an emergency meeting. Yeah. Yep. Um, and they debated it and, and basically decided to sack him with a vote of nine to three. Yes. Um, however, on that Friday night, None of them had the guts to go and tell him in person. I mean, fair enough, he's a scary guy, all we <laughs> yeah. know. Um, so they decided to inform him via a messenger. 
Yes. The following letter was taken to him straight away. Um, he was on the phone to Hassan Mann when he received this letter. Yeah. And Charlie, you've got a copy of it. I would like to read it. <clears throat> I have been requested by my committee to remind you of the matters discussed with you at its meeting with you on Wednesday last, the 21st, at which you advised the committee that you intended to resign at the end of the present season. At that meeting, you undertook... A, to see speaking against the committee or its members and to loyally support the committee in its conduct of the club's affairs. B, to cooperate to the fullest extent with other members of the match committee in the coaching of players and the selection of the teams. C, to inform the players of your fullest support of the committee in its conduct of the club's affairs. These undertakings were accepted by the committee in good faith and with the sincere hope that the normal happy relations which have existed within the club for a considerable period would be restored. The committee members were amazed when they discovered that on the very next night, Thursday the 22nd of this month, you not only expressed to the players your dissatisfaction with the selection committee, but when asked by the secretary at a meeting of the players in the committee room to comply with the third undertaking, you told him a deliberate lie when you stated that you had already informed the players on the field. Obviously you do not intend to honour your word and the committee is not prepared to allow your disruptive tactics to continue and your appointment as coach is cancelled as from this day. It is most unfortunate that your long and valued association with the club should have to end this way but drastic steps must be taken to prevent any further disruption of the club's activities. Mm. So did they insert that stuff about him like deceiving the club? Cause... So that, no, because as, as far as um, what I've read in that in the fantastic with the last hurrah and a few other few other things that he had taken it he had taken their meaning to be like talk to the players and he had done so in small not as a whole playing group but in small groups and so when he said yes i've spoken to them that's what he meant okay the the but the club and he had a different understanding of what that should have looked like obviously Yeah. I mean, it's pretty clear the committee wanted him out. Yeah. And they were looking for the tiniest thing. The other thing we didn't mention also was his role in, in Barassi leaving. Yes, he um, was happy to... He he offered to step aside, which the committee hadn't given his blessing to because it was a, the committee's decision, not his. Yeah. So they were a little bit incensed. One, that he'd done that, and two, that they'd let Barassi go and that um, he'd been quite an advocate for Barassi leaving the club. Well, that was it. He was, he was very vocal in his belief that the committee should allow him a clearance to go to Carlton, yep. even though it's sort of hang, hung in the air for a few months. They didn't want to give it. And then Cardwell basically was forced to and yeah. but kind of tried to make it sound like it was his idea. It was a very strange mm. situation. Yes. Yeah. All right. So Norm was distressed. He was on the phone to Hassa man. So he, so he got off the phone to Hassa. Got the message, then called Hassa back. Yeah, Hassa thought it was a prank caller. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and then he wasn't coaching the next day. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a game. Yeah. So, round 13, they're taking on North Melbourne. Who do they get to coach? Of, well, I mean, who else would you choose except for the four-time premiership ca- coach of Melbourne, Checker Hughes? Hughes. Yeah. yeah, so he came out of retirement. At 71? 71 and yeah. five months. Is the oldest coach in VFL, AFL history. Um, although Bluey Adams was to take charge of trainings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So he's not running around on the field, funnily but enough. Most of the team pledged their support to Barassi, uh, to Norm Smith, and yeah. didn't want to play. Um, in the end, it was basically, you know, they decided to play because it's what Norm would have wanted, wanted to yeah, do. Yeah, exactly. Um, quite rightly, they were distracted, and the team was beaten by North Melbourne by 21 points. Yeah. The first time they'd lost to the Roos since 1953. 
Uh, this also ga- also knocked them out of the top four. Yes. Well, isn't that interesting mm. that that was the game that did it? I mean, it was always it was going to happen. It was a Probably, at Coburg. Yeah. It was a wet and yeah. not great day. Yeah. I think there, there's anecdotes about Checker actually not knowing like some of the players', players yeah. names yeah. and things like yeah. that. None of them wanted to be there. They were so distracted. Yeah. So yeah. Um, then the committee tried to ban players from going to Ron to Norm Smith's house after the game. And they're like, no, you can't do that. And quite, I think most of them went there. Yeah. To, you know, to help him get through what was happening. The next day, Norm Smith went on the Tony Charlton football show. And yes. And a bit of audio we might play. Um, basically calling out the committee and saying, you know, he's a man of his word. He's not going anywhere. He's a Melbourne man through and through. Um, and basically, I don't know if you want to add any more here, but due to external pressure and everyone's love and loyalty for Norm, the committee had no... Other response, but to reinstate Norm Smith as yeah, coach? Yeah, there was a bit of like, I think there was a little bit of, oh, we've actually um, we've actually mistaken this. I think Norm, Norm was a, a, a bit contrite also in like he sort of said, I've got very, he was very much, I don't have anything to apologize for, but this is what may have happened yeah. and stuff. And I think he, he was very much coming forward to try and heal the wounds as well and he wasn't he wasn't trying to hold a grudge against them at this stage and was it was a QC or some some legal like a, a supporter of Melbourne was the, like the mediator who brought them together oh okay I don't know who it was exactly but there was some oh here we go um, Trevor Rapke a renowned county court judge an MCC member and passionate demon supporter um, he seemed to be the mediator who brought them together. Yeah. And said, you know, Norm's willing to come back. Would you be willing to have him? Yeah, we will. Um, so, yeah, they basically people power got him back. And, yeah. and by all accounts, they mended the, those bridges and got yes. on with it. Yeah. Um, so Norm entered the group to rapturous applause from the Melbourne fans. Oh, so for the Rand 14 game. Um, and it was Brian Dixon's 200th as well. So there was actually more applause for Norm than there was for <laughs> Brian Dixon. Uh, this game was close throughout. The Demons led by just... Two goals. Uh, let me just find out who they're playing here as well in round 14. Uh, it was the Demons taking on Fitzroy. Um, game was close throughout and the Demons led by just under, just over two goals late, but the Lions came home fast. And with seconds left, Bob Miller took a game-saving mark in defence to help the Demons held on by two points. However, this would be their final win of the season, Charlie. Yeah. Um, they would nosedive out of the finals for the first time since 1953. <laughs> And they would not make another finals series again until 1987, um, which, which was the first the year first of national year of the AFL. <laughs> Unbelievable. Not AFL, but yeah. That, yeah, national, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the turning point, really. Yep. I mean, what a miserable time. And we'll talk more about this. We'll, yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, <laughs> the lean times make the, like, make the good times even better, yeah. right? Yeah. That's why we live in the past. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't interesting talking to Adam Wilcock last week and just he he seems to really enjoy yes. the misery and all the <laughs> yeah, just yeah. everything that befalls the club. You have to, don't yeah. you? Yeah. He yeah. embraces it. Just really em- yeah. Really embrace just the the crazy thing. And all clubs have it. Oh, of course. At times where you're just like, What is was this decision that was <laughs> yeah. made? But it's yeah, it's you've got to do it. Yeah. But unbelievable. So Eleven straight years in the finals. Yep. And then we miss it. Six premierships. And then we miss it for twenty-three. I mean, you've 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 earned it. I mean, yeah. You've, you've got you've got your wins. You've banked your wins. <laughs> now we just yeah yeah. Um, 
so I mean, in all this mess, who we, who who took the home the best and fairest? Ah, yes, yeah, good question. Best and fairest was Johnny Townsend. He was also the leading goal kicker Downer. with thirty-five. So there you go. Nice. So moving up the ladder to sixth was yes. Carlton. Yeah, we got lots to talk about here as well. well. Yes, yeah, we certainly do. Right. So the Blues with uh, 10, 10 wins, eight losses as well, same as Melbourne. Mm. Uh, ca- uh, ca- Captain coach Captain by... Captain coach by Ronald Dale Barassi. Correct. Um, so the Blues approached Barassi originally... Kind of in 63, unbeknownst yes. to him. Uh, then later in 64. Well, that's funny when you say unbeknownst to him. Like well, he they, wasn't really sure, was yeah, he? Yeah, no, they gave, they put the overtures on him and he didn't sort of pick up on no. it. So, yeah. Um, and so, 64, they actually courted him for a few months with several different approaches um, and and culminating in them asking, basically, do you want to captain coach our team? Do you want to, you know, don't live in the shadow of Norm? In December, after wrestling with his decision and deciding that if he stayed at Melbourne, any success he had would be attributed to Norm Smith, yes, uh, like Norm's was to Checker, yeah. um, he decided to make a switch to the Blues. Norm, as we said, had offered to quit and Brassie take over, but he didn't want to. Out of courtesy, Brassie drove down to Norm Smith's holiday house in Rosebud to tell him before the papers could release the news. And, you know, it's respect between captain coach and, and especially the relationship they had. Yeah. Um, Melbourne at first refused to clear him to play, but after uh, Norm Smith and Checker Hughes argued his case, they released him. They can't, they almost didn't really have a choice. I mean, we're talking a player who played over 200 games. There's sort yeah. of some... Yeah, over 200 games, yeah. six premierships. I mean, like, he's bled red and blue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, some debutants for Carlton this year were Ron Stoneham... And John Lloyd, father of Matthew. Hey, okay. Didn't quite play enough games to get a cat that they father son though. Oh, really? <laughs> well, that's it pops up. Like, we'll talk about it later. But they do that. They they get Ron back for one extra game, so they get it, so he gets his fifty games. So any children are eligible for Carlton as well. <laughs> nice. Uh, so interest was high in the Blues opening game with new coach uh, Ron Barassi. Uh, they played Hawthorne at Glen Ferry and the. Attendance was around 36,000 for the game. The Blues kept the Hawks scoreless in the opening quarter, kicking six goals, five themselves, and this was roughly the margin at the end of the game. Blues by, thir- uh, Blues by 37 in a great start to Ron Barassi's coaching yes. career. In round two, John Nichols was reported for the first time ever as the Blues went down to the Cats. Barassi missed round three, but returned for round four to help them with a 63-point demolition of North Melbourne at Princess Park. Jim Frosty Miller bagged five goals for the Blues. Round five, the Blues then visited Victoria Park and were in all sorts after the Pies amassed 6-1 to 1-2 in the opening quarter. The margin got out to 35 points before Carlton's ruck combination of Nichols and Barassi took control and the visitors visitors added 12-5 to 2-10 and celebrated a great victory by 20 points. Frosty Miller with another six goals in this one. Hey, Frosty. They beat the Tigers and then the Bombers and suddenly after seven rounds they had as many wins as they had for the entire season before. But the following week, yeah. yeah, following week against the uh, the demons, Barassi was unable able to have his influence. Um, the demons playing him to perfection, as we said. Um, this would also be Frosty Miller's last game for the Blues. Good wins over the Lions and Dogs, uh, and then they came within a goal of ladder leading St Kilda. Then wins over the Hawks and Cats in a wet game against Geelong, in which Nichols proved himself physically stronger in the conditions than Farmer and still had command of the rucks in the closing stages. Nichols' clear edge in the rucks brought uh, first Rover Gallagher into the game and the pair were able to sweep the ball away from backs whenever they wished. Nichols deftly palmed the ball and Gallagher picking it up easy and cleanly as, it was a, as if it was a dry day. Uh, and that was in a win over Geelong. 
In round 14, they lost to South Melbourne. And Ron Barassi tried something that Norm Smith and Alan Jeans have been trialling, which was sitting in the press box and relaying information via walkie-talkie. Ah, uh, yes, okay. Um, and I think I think it's Barassi. There's a, an anecdote where the, like a member of the MCC staff come to him and said, you're going to have to stop using the walkie-talkie. And Ron's like, why? What do you, what do you mean? They said, well, the police can pick you up and the language you're using isn't very, uh, very nice. <laughs> Um, yes, yeah, so three more losses saw Carlton crash out of the finals contention. But <laughs> here's a good one. For the round 15 game against North at Coburg, Barassi again, so who's injured and was coaching from the sidelines. Side yeah. He wanted a better vantage point. No press box. So uh, he decided to climb up on an electrical substation to watch the match. <laughs> uh, and he watched his team go down by two goals. Round 18, it was a tough contest. Carlton were playing the finals bound Essendon. And the Blues lit up Princess Park with a victory to end the season. From the first bounce, Carlton applied pressure to its more brilliant opponents. Every Carlton player was breathing down the neck of his Bombers opponent, but always managed to get to the ball first. The Blues played a close, hard-checking brand of football, which worried the Bombers off their natural game. But it was Nichols who almost sewed the game up single-handedly in the first three quarters. He gave one of the best exhibitions of ruck work seen for many years, beating two opponents at every ball up and throw in from the boundary. Uh, so, all in all, an improved season under Barassi saw them double their wins and much higher on the ladder. That's huge to come in as a, as a first-year coach and, and do that. Yeah. Massive. And I think it's Carlton's... Good side as well. Yeah. Like, Carlton, the bones of a great side are there. Yeah, well, we know. Yes. <laughs> because those, those names are legendary. Yeah, 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 it's a good point. Like, you don't know, wouldn't might, maybe know it at the time, but with a rugman like Nichols and Serge Silvani, obviously. Which we didn't really mention there. Yeah, well, who would be captain if they hadn't got brass. Well, they had three, three captains in three years. Yeah. So, interesting. Very interesting. So, who's taken home the awards? Well, best and fairest, who do you think? Nichols? Yes, it was. And leading goal kicker was Brian Quirk with 29. Quirky. Quirky. Which takes us up to fifth on the ladder, just missing out on finals. Who else could it possibly be but Richmond? Richmond. Okay, some debutants. Wilf Dickerson and Kevin Bartlett. Hey. Kaz is going to tell us a little bit about KB. So, Kevin Bartlett, from 1965 to 83, 403 games, 768 goals. From the Tri-Boys under-15s, Bartlett's playing career was spread over 19 injury-free seasons. As a boy, Bartlett barracked for Footscray, but lived not far from Richmond's Punt Road Oval, and it was tied residentially to the Tigers. He worked, uh, excuse me, he walked into the club and asked for a trial. The rest of it is football history. Bartlett was a natural rover, a great reader of the play, and uncanny in his ability to steer clear of trouble, um, a skill which he has mastered to this day. He has had tremendous, he has tremendous courage and relied on pace and skill to avoid crushing tackles. Many opponents tried to retire him from the game, but Bartlett very rarely was nailed. A prolific possession winner, Bartlett was particularly dangerous near goal. This earned him the nickname Hungry and was claimed uh, he would rather have a shot at goal uh, from 50 metres than pass to a teammate. Bartlett achieved almost every honour in VFL football except winning the Brownlow medal. He won Richmond's Best and Ferris five times, was leading goal kicker three times and was captain for the 1979 season in an era in which 
Tiger skippers rarely lasted more than a season. Bartlett, of course, was a Victorian representative throughout his uh, most of his VFL career. 20 appearances for 32 goals and captained the Big White V in 1980. He played in the 67, 69, 63, 64 and 80 Richmond Premiership sides and always was one of his side's best players in these matches. He kicked seven goals in the 1980 grand final win over Collingwood, which can't stop with the, the accolades. Uh, this effort won him the Norm Smith Medal for Best on Ground. Bartlett became a media commentator after his retirement uh, before coaching Richmond in 1988 to 1991. Not a small feat. And now is one of the sport's most respected commentators. So before we uh, hear too much more about Richmond, this year coached by Len Smith and Skinny Titus... Uh, and captained by Neville Crow again. Yeah, so Richmond officially moved home ground for these season as well. Yes. Shifting from Punt Road to the MCG. Um, uh, so sharing with Melbourne for the first time and continuing to train at Punt Road Oval because... Uh, they had to move yeah. because the because of the road works on Punt Road. Well, they were yeah, they were shortening the ground because they had to make Punt Road bigger. Well, so they... Yeah, they... The ground got smaller, but also there was no... There was no... Um, Space for, spectators. Space for spectators on one side of the ground anymore, yeah. so they couldn't get the gate taking. Yeah, in. yeah, um, and which is an interesting move in itself. And we talked to uh, Adam about this, but Richmond also were, were interested in Ron Barassi being coach. Yes, but really wanted to move to the MCG, and that took preference. They didn't want to anger Melbourne or Absolutely. the MCC by poaching Barassi and then having the audacity to ask to move to the MCG they, as well. Uh, yeah, so they, they kind picked of, their battles. They let that one go. And he probably... Worked. I mean, it could, it could yeah. have gone there. He, he easily could have gone there. I mean, with Len Smith. and yeah. yeah. Well, their first loss... Sorry, their first game was a loss. We talked about that playing the MC, the battle, the MCG Derby. Yeah. Um, losing to Melbourne. Uh, and this was followed by a gutsy win against the Magpies at Victoria Park. Uh, round 13, in the lead-up to this game... Richmond taking on St Kilda at the MCG. Uh, Len Smith was speaking to Kevin Bartlett saying, you know, you're going to be the 19th man this week. And Kevin Bartlett looked disappointed. You know, he thought he'd done enough to remain in the starting 18. Uh, and then Len said, you know I mean the seniors, <laughs> yeah, not the reserves. Um, so he do debut during the third quarter, replacing John Sheehan, uh, who came off the ground with a sprained ankle. Uh, in this game, Mike Perry broke his jaw. Peter Horgan corked his leg and was replaced by Tev Trevor Gowers. Uh, Richmond played with 17 men in the last quarter and went on went down by 11 points. A hard-fought game against St Kilda. Uh, but this would be Len Smith's last game in charge because on the eve of the next game, he would have another heart attack mm. and decided that he was no good for the club as a coach and he couldn't keep you know letting them down like this. So yeah. he resigned and handed the team over to legend Jack Skinny Titus. Skinny Titus, yeah. Um, he would still be, I think, on chairman, chairman of selectors going forward, though. Yes. The Tigers rose to the occasion, now playing against Essendon in round four, led by Bull Richardson and Don Davenport. They beat the Bombers by four goals, doing it for Len. They followed it up with a strong win, their first at the MCG as the home team, beating the Hawks by 45 points. Don Davenport kicked five goals, too. Round seven, they absolutely dominated the Roos, winning by 94 points at the MCG. Swooper Norley with five, and Kevin Bartlett, the leading possession getter on the ground with 23. Johnny Northey then kicked seven against the Lions the following week in another big win. Uh, they then scraped home in a lucky one against the Dogs. Several players missed easy shots at goal in the last quarter, but they still held on. 
Round 11, they continued their big wins with uh, kicking nine goals in the last quarter against the Swans to earn a 76-point win. They then inflicted the win over the Demons at the MCG, uh, which was the win, I guess, the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will. Uh, losses in round 13 and 14 put an end to their finals hopes but they still had a 58 point win over the Bombers beating them for the second time this year huge yeah round 17 this win over Carlton saw Tigers big man Bill Barrett as best on ground with one goal and 32 kicks mostly all deep in Carlton's defence helping Richmond to a 23 point win their final of the year before a disappointing loss in the final round but the Tigers are on the up and up uh, their scoring was evident from this. They had some big wins. Yeah. Um, and they were beginning to prove they could compete with the big teams. What was their percentage again? Their percentage there was... Um, oh, 125. 100, yeah, so massive. So that's, that's bigger than Geelong's, who are in the finals. Yeah. So that's, a, that's always a big indicator if you can pick, kick a big score. Yeah, it certainly yeah. is. Yeah. And beating g- good teams like Essendon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, huge. So... Best and fairest for the Bill Barrett, it was. And Mick Irwin with 32 goals was their lead goal kicker there. So that takes us up into the finals. But before we talk finals, should we talk night series? We should talk night series. Let's talk night series. Is it the Golden Fleece? It is the Golden Fleece. It is still the Golden Fleece. I love it. I love that name. It is great, isn't it? Uh, So we've got... All the, all the clubs that didn't quite make it there, obviously Richmond would be looking favourites for it at this stage, you'd, you'd think. think. Um, but we will... So, here we go. Let's hear about it. Well, we've got the, we've got the Ds also in there for the first time well, ever. No, second time, because remember that one year they brought every team into play? Oh, that's right. Yes, yeah. First, first time officially as first, a bottom eight team. As a bottom eight team. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, bottom eight. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, that took a little while. So we've got in our first round, we've got Carlton versus Melbourne, uh, and so another RD Barassi Cup there in the night <laughs> series. Yeah. And Carlton have absolutely put the Melbourne to the sword there, um, leading from the beginning. Melbourne not being able to kick a single score in the first quarter, and Carlton kicking nine three, so zero fifty seven into the first change. And it basically stayed that way for the whole game. With Carlton running out winners, 21-10, 136 to Melbourne's 8-12-60. I wonder how Norm felt about the night series. Can't imagine great. Mm. <laughs> uh, then we had uh, Richmond and Fitzroy in the second game. Again, Richmond uh, running out very clear winners there, leading from the start to come to lead, win 18-14, 122 to 8-9-57. Next game was Hawthorne South, and Hawthorne, coming from the bottom, managed to beat South in a very uh, inaccurate win with 9.25.79 to South Melbourne's 9.10.64. And then we had North Melbourne and Footscray. North Melbourne running out the winners there, leading from the beginning, uh, 13.12.90 to 9.12.66. in front of 23,730 people, so the second largest crowd in the semi-final, we had Carlton and Richmond. And Carlton run out very clear winners again, 14-15-99 to 5-10-40. They're not very there's, close games, are they? There's no stopping them. Yeah, there hasn't been a close one yet, apart from the Hawthorne-South Melbourne one's the yeah. closest. Uh, and then we had Hawthorne-North, and North just... It's, there's not a game that we've come across yet 
that hasn't been led the entire time by the winning side. But aren't those, those four teams there in the semi-finals, that is a sign of things to come, especially in the 70s. Yes. Yeah, very true. So we've got North Melbourne there winning 13-10-88 to 6-10-46, which takes us to the grand final of Carlton-North Melbourne. So North Melbourne finishing ninth, Carlton finishing sixth. You would have thought Carlton would have had it. And at quarter time, you would have absolutely thought it. Uh, Carlton having a 3-1 quarter to North Melbourne's 1-1. But then North got their skates on and just kept on on going, kicking five goals in the second quarter to Carlton's 1 and then continuing that run, running out winners 14-13-97 to 9-3-57 in front of 37,750 people. So... Both Carlton's Kevin Hall and North Melbourne's Frank Good tied for series honours with nine goals apiece. Obviously, both playing three games. That helps. Um, And Melbourne, their first official um, showing in the night series, and they just... They went out in the first round. Oh, the Demons, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I, was, yeah, I was saying the North, North, North Melbourne's first piece of silverware, absolutely. As a VFL S- team. As a, since crossing from the VFA, yeah. So... Yeah, first senior trophy, you should say. So they did oh, yes, win the under-19s and, 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 yeah. and the reserves in 46, 47 and 57. Yeah. Uh, but this was um, the closest they'd come <laughs> since their grand final appearance in 1950. Yeah. yeah. Let's get to those top four then. Let's get to the top four. Fantastic. So coming in fourth place was the same olds. Bombers. The Bombers. Back up there with uh, 12... 12 wins, 6 losses, and a huge percentage of 132.9. Uh, yeah, good times. Good times. Uh, captain coach. Captain coach. Uh, I can I tell you. Hey, please do. Captain uh, co- coached again by the great man John Coleman. Of course. Uh, and captain this year by uh, Ken Fraser with Jack Clark stepping down at the end of uh, 64. Yes, okay. Season started well as well. Good first up win over Fitzroy. They kicked 7-7 in the third quarter to you know to really dominate that game. This was followed by a day out against the Hawks. Uh, Ted Fordham kicked five on their way to a 94-point win. Uh, Common saying that for the first time in years, Essendon put in a four-quarter game of football. They then backed this up with an inaccurate six-goal nine game against the Dogs, but it was a 78-point win. They then backed this up with a big win against the Doggies, 78 points. And after three weeks, the Bombers were clear on top of the ladder with a percentage of 223.1. <laughs> Love that. Uh, but then they had a shock loss to the uh, the Tigers, who were obviously inspired by Len Smith's absence, um, but this was remedied by beating the previously undefeated Saints. But in this game, the Dons would lose Barry, Barry Davis. Um, he was flattened by a St Kilda player, damaged his eye socket and broke his jaw, and he was out for nine weeks. Also in this game, guess who was reported? Who? John Coleman. Of course. Uh, because he was he jumped up out of his seat on the bench. Um has he been reported more as a coach than he was as a player at this stage? Um, possibly. Um, a letter from umpire Barry Gordian said that he'd sat down straight away, so no no action was taken. Okay, he good. didn't do anything, he just stood up. <laughs> he just stood up. In round six, here's a fun fact, Essendon forward Jeff Gosper was the first VFL player to wear a mouth guard. I saw this. In the Bombers' loss to the South Melbourne Swans. 
Um, I don't know how they know that either. No. And I want to know more about what it was made of. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, after wood. A, it was wooden. <laughs> after... <laughs> <laughs> After a loss to Carlton, they paid their first and only visit to Coburg Oval to play North Melbourne. Uh, and led by Hugh Mitchell, they won by seven points. In round 10, they gave Melbourne their second successive defeat. The Demon defence meeting its match in the Bombers forward line. John Burt, best on ground. Um, Bombers by 29. And this kicked off a run of five wins in a row, beating the Cats, Lions, Hawks and Dogs as well. In round 16, they came from behind to beat the Saints again by five points. So we've got a bit. We've got the wood over the Saints this year. They can't quite handle us. Um, then round 17, a 66-point win over South Melbourne cemented their spot in the finals. David Shaw kicked six goals, three in this game. Bombers finished fourth, entering another final season. Yes. yes. Good on them. So who do you reckon was their best and fairest in 65? Oh, not Barry Davis. John, yeah. John Burt. Was John Burt. Well done. And uh, Teddy Fordham yeah. with 54 yeah, goals. Yeah, he had a big season. Yes. Fordham, especially his final series. Yeah. So that takes us up to third spot. And uh, the mighty pivots, Geelong, the Cats, uh, with 13 wins, five losses, and a percentage of 121.2%. Yes. So Alistair Lord was determined to gain a clearance to play in Tassie this year. Oh. Uh, but was denied a clearance by the league, and so he decided to sit out the year. Wait for his clearance. Just sat it out. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, did we see the captain coach? No, we didn't. Oh, so, let's, let's do that. Uh, yes, coached by Bobby Davis yep. this year, captained by Graham Polly Farmer. He taking would, over from Fred Wooler. He'd be the first Indigenous captain as well, wouldn't he? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Nice. Uh, round one in a rain drenched game, Geelong came from behind to overrun the doggies. The dogs were using negative tactics of flooding to try and defend the lead in the last quarter. Uh, John Sammy Newman showed improved maturity and made up for the sluggish play of Polly Farmer. Uh, John Sharrock kicked the winning goal with about 10 minutes to play as the Cats won by two points. You're pretty, I mean, it's a glut, isn't it, when you've got Polly Farmer and Sammy Newman yeah. in the same team. Yeah. Unbelievable. Spoiled for choice. Uh, round two, one of the highlights of the Cats' win over Carlton was another John Nichols Polly Farmer ruck battle. Nichols won the earlier exchanges, uh, but Farmer was sent forward and kicked five goals. Oh, take it. Uh, helped the Cats grab a one goal victory. So I reckon he probably won that. Day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then Billy Goggin dominated round three's win over North Melbourne, 27 disposals and four goals, while Bill Ryan was entertaining the crowd with his spectacular marks. Round four against the Magpies, they held off an onslaught in the final quarter when they couldn't kick a goal, but every Geelong man found courage and stepped up. Polly Farmer was continuing to find Billy Goggin with his radar hand passes, just out of the ruck, and the Cats held on to win by five points. Round six, you're a shock return by Alistair Lord. Back hey. into the team. Couldn't sit out. Couldn't sit out. They trounced the Lions by 31 points. He had 18 disposals in a moderate return. Polly Farmer best on ground. Round seven, John Sharrock had a day out for the Cats as they dominated the Hawks. The Hawks tried three different opponents on him as he marked everything that came his way. He took 10, marks for the, 10 contested marks for the day. Well, I assume they're contested. Yeah. Um, <laughs> while Doug Wade kicked five goals in a 77-point thumping. Uh, Goggin then dem- dominated against the Rising Saints at Cardinia Park in round eight in a hard-fought match. He had 35 disposals. After an untimely loss to South Melbourne, Wade kicked the biggest haul of goals for, this, for his season so far, kicking seven against the Tigers as the Cats beat them by 16 points. Between round eight and 15, the Cats went win-loss, 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 uh, most of those wins being at home with solid wins over Melbourne, North Melbourne, Footscray. Uh, actually, in that Footscray game, Polly Farmer had to wear a face shield. 
because he had his nose broken on state duty in Adelaide. Uh, luckily, though, he was playing against John Schultz, who was known to be as a gentleman and wouldn't harm a fly. So, he, you know, any other players would have probably roughed him up and given yeah. him some, some hits, but not, not him, not Schultzy. <laughs> not Schultzy. Round 17, Wayne Kloster of the Cats started off on fire against Fitzroy, having four of the Cats' first seven kicks. He finished with 22 as the Cats fought off and determined Fitzroy by three goals. And in final round, round 18, first-year player and 16-year-old Ken Newland dominated the Hawks in his, in his first game on dry ground <laughs> uh, with 31 disposals. He was described as playing like a racehorse who had been put away for the winter. <laughs> the Cats won by 53, consigning the Hawks to the wooden spoon. There you go. And that, I mean... The rivalry for the Cats and the Hawks is quite new. Yes. But like being you could, the team... That, you could trace it back. Yeah, well, these formative years of their, their rivalry, definitely it. Um, and, I like, and the Cats would have enjoyed consigning the Hawks to a wooden spoon. So, who won the best and fairest for the Cats this year? Oh, it's going to be either Goggin or Farmer. I would have said Goggin, but it wasn't. It was Peter Walker. Oh, really? There you go. And lead goal kicker? Oh, surely Wade. You would think so as well, but it wasn't. No. It was Gareth Andrews with 35. So Wade obviously uh, either missed a few games or wasn't kicking a straight. Got to point this out, though. This this year, 65, Gareth Andrews was the only year that Doug Wade didn't win the leading goal kicker between 61 and 72. There you go. He only played 10 games. Well, there you go. So that's why. Yeah. Unbelievable. So continuing to climb up that ladder... The, penul- second the spot. penultimate spot on the, the penultimate spot on, on the ladder belongs to those mighty magpies, Collingwood. 13 wins, 5 losses. Is penultimate second last? Se- second. Second. Or second last. I guess it depends on the way you're reading it. The okay. penul- no, yeah. penultimate, second. Okay. Yeah. Second to last. Second? Yeah, no, yeah second. Okay, second on the ladder. Second on the ladder. 13 wins, 5 losses, 130.2%. Uh, this year... Coach in his second year as coach. In his second year as coach, yes, second year as coach. Taking over from Von Skyne, we have Bob Rose and Captain Big Gabo Ray Gablich. Indeed, all right. Some big debut uh, debutants as well. Um, some lesser known names: Born Ellis, Peter Patterson, Peter Patter, <laughs> uh, Brian Huppatz, and his two names: Len Thompson and Peter McKenna. Yeah, they sound familiar. Yeah, Kaz is going to tell us a little yeah. bit more about them. Okay, Len Ernest Thompson, Collingwood, 65-68, 270 games, 217 goals. South Melbourne, 79, 20 games. Uh, Fitzroy, 1980, 13 games. Probably the first giant ruckman to combine aerial skills with tremendous mobility. Thompson was a truly gifted athlete. Collingwood recruited him from North Reservoir after Essendon missed its chance to secure him and he quickly established himself as one of the finest ruckmen of his era. Thompson made his debut in 1965 preliminary final after three rucks were outed with injury and he immediately established himself as a star. Oh, debuting in a final. One of the few disappointments of his career was playing in four grand finals without a premiership. He often crossed swords with the committees at Collingwood. And the first major bust-up was in 1970 when he and Tuddenham went on strike over demands for greater pay in the face of big payouts to interstate players. He won Collingwood's best and fairest a record five times and won the 1972 Brownlow. Spoilers, sorry, Moz. 
and then he resigned over another pay dispute. The pay demands were damaging to the club and to Thompson himself, a tremendously safe mark and clever ground player, despite his great height. So there's a little bit about Len Ernest Thompson. Jay McKenna, recruited from West Heidelberg at YCW at his peak. McKenna was the most popular footballer in Australia, with a following um, to rival that of a pop star. As a naturally shy person, McKenna found the attention hard to handle. He once kicked 16 goals in a match. That's right, you heard correctly. 16 in one match against South Melbourne and first captured the Collingwood fans' imagination in the opening round of 1966, where he booted 12 goals in a sensational effort. Yet within weeks, he was dropped to the reserves and played the rest of the season there after refusing to accept Collingwood's directive not to play a midweek teacher's college in the teacher's college games. McKenna knew how to perfectly time his leads and usually topped it off with a deadly drop punt. Uh, like any great full forward, he could make the most of limited opportunities. Collingwood cut off short his TV career because he was working late on Friday nights on Channel 9. A kid's show on Saturday mornings with Daryl Summers was also ruled out and he was replaced by Ozzy Ostrich. The show Hey Hey It's Saturday would run for another two decades. That's a little bit about Peter J. McKenna. Um, so round one, the Pies were the first club to visit the new Moorabbin ground. And became the first club to be beaten there. <laughs> um, Peter McKenna kicked his first three goals in league football as the Pies beat Richmond in round two at Victoria Park by 15 points. Uh, Des Tuddenham had 30 disposals in that game. Round three, they had a big 69-point win over the Hawks with McKenna kicking five goals too uh, in only his second game. And Des Tuddenham kicked four and Terry Waters four as well. Uh, but then they had losses to Carlton and Melbourne and saw them sit with a two and four record. So mm, not, not the start not Bobby Rose would have wanted. But from here they started to pick up their form uh, and an even performance saw them beat South. Michael Bone was the star in a win over the Dogs and a way win over the Bombers at Windy Hill and a come from behind win in the mud heap that was Coburg Oval over North Melbourne. With a round 12 win over St. Ladder leading St. Kilda, the Pies were now in striking distance of the top four. They had wins over Richmond, Hawthorne, and then doubled Geelong's score at Victoria Park, and the Pies were finally locked into finals contention. Hey. Again. Round 16, the game against the Blues at Princess Park produced some brilliant football with little between the teams. Ray Gablich rucked superbly and capped off his best performance for the season with four goals. His battle with John Nichols was at the height of the match. Ian Montgomery once again defended brilliantly for Collingwood. Ian Graham played cleverly at full forward and kicked four goals. Gary Crane and Cliff Stewart were too fast for their opponents on the wings as the Pies won by 25. Round 17, and I guess this is a bit of a revenge for the Magpies as well. They beat the Demons, officially ending their chance of finals. Oh, they're good like that. A 42-point win uh, with Gablich kicking four. I mean, yeah, they are, even though you beat them in how many grand finals? Yeah. Four of them. Um, they lost their final game, but this didn't dislodge them from the top two. Nice. Yeah. So Collingwood just doing their Collingwood things. And that was, they run one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. They won 11 in a row. To finish the season. Well, no, 11 in a row between, what was that, round seven and round 17. So they lost their final game. So South Melbourne. Yeah, not bad. I think South Melbourne beat them in the final one but, round breaking that streak. Yes. But yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, yeah they've got it covered. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so... 
Tell me who was best and fairest for Collingwood this year. I don't think you're going to get it. Oh, Terry Waters? No, it's Trevor Steer. Ah, oh, Steery. And lead goal kicker. Um, McKenna? No, it can't, can't be McKenna in his first year. Let's say Tundum. No, it was Dave Norman with 32. They, they really shared the goal kicking around the centres. Yeah, they did at this stage, didn't they? Let me, so, let me have a good look at that. Well, while you're doing that, it takes us to the top of the ladder. Yeah, sorry, just it? before you get to the top of the well, ladder. please. You've got David Norman with 32, Tundum 27, Waters 25, Ian Graham 22, Peter McKenna 21. So yeah, there you go. Five players kicking Over 20. Yeah, it's not bad, is it? And then you've got Michael Bone with 19. So, yeah, a good, a good spread there. Goal kickers. Mm. Anyway, sorry. So, top, top of the ladder. ladder. It feels weird not having talked about them. I know. Yeah, you'd usually expect to talk about them in the first sort of half an hour right. of the show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it is those mighty mighty saints. Yeah. St Kilda on the top of the ladder with 14 clear on the top, not just percentage. Yeah. 14 wins, four losses, 136.3%. Yep. So coached by Alan Jeans and oh sorry, yeah, coached by Alan Jeans and captained by Daryl Ball. Mr Magic. Yes, that's right. Uh, debutants were Ted Schwartzman and two big names that you might know of, Barry Breen and Kevin Neal. Yes. As will tell us about them. Barry Breen. Uh, Breen always will be remembered as the player who kicked the winning behind against Collingwood in the 1966 grand final. Breen, recruited from Mentone, was an exceptionally talented centre-half forward who played in defence later in his career. His football pedigree stretched back to his grandfather, who captained Kerry to the All-Ireland uh, Gaelic Football Championship in 1901. We love history here. Um, as a teenager, Breen went back to play uh, for Mentone under-18s uh, during a VFL split round after playing in the Saint um, the Saint Seniors uh, a week earlier. Breen admitted uh, in later years that he didn't appreciate uh, the enormity of the famous 66 grand final behind at the time. Breen was a match winner on his day, but his tremendous natural ability was laced with inconsistency in his early years. After Baldock left the club, Breen um, had a hard act to follow as centre-half forward, and it was accentuated when he also took over the ex-skipper's famous number, number four. When Mike Patterson took over as coach in 1978, Breen was made into a full-back and adapted well. Barry Breen. Okay, Kevin C. Neal, a burly, tough character from South Warrnambool, uh, who was one of the most popular players in St Kilda's history. Most of his first year was spent as a backman, but in 1966, he was shifted to full forward, where his strength and stay in the square approach fitted in with the system and giving Bulldog plenty of space. His kicking wasn't always reliable, and he preceded an eight-goal one effort with a thrusting two-goal uh, two seven. He had played in the losing 67 grand final side in defence, but he was a key forward in the 1966 final series, booting five goals in the history-making grand final win. In 1967, he produced one of the most brilliant efforts against Essendon, when he kicked six goals in the third quarter, he struggled in the nine, in 1970, and many people thought his best football might be behind him. But he proved that wrong and had a fine season in 71, mainly as a defender. 
All right, so St Kilda moved its training and playing base from Junction Oval to Moorabbin Oval after signing a 75-year lease with the Moorabbin Council in June 1964. 75 years. The first game at Moorabbin was round one against Collingwood. It attracted a crowd of 51,370 people, a total never surpassed at the ground. Really? Really, yep. Uh, in this game, the Saints skipped away to a good lead, uh, and Ian Cooper's 50-yard punt was the first goal officially at this venue, before the Pies clawed their way back into the game. Saints steadied thanks to Ross Smith's 27 disposals and uh, Ross the boss, Ross Oakley, mm. chipping in with four goals. Good on him. Round two was the Saints' first non-Lakeside pennant match against the Swans at Lakeside Oval. <laughs> uh, Saints were rarely troubled and won by 33, although promising ruckman Jim Wallace injured his knee and never played again. Which is a, a disappointing loss. Um, I will say a lot of this information about St Kilda comes from Russell Holmesby's books as well. Fantastic. He is the doyen of all St Kilda history, so and props I mean, to him. General football history as oh, yeah, well, absolutely. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so Jim Wallace was injured, so Brian Sirikowski came in to replace him and help the Saints beat the Tigers by 11 points. In round five, Essendon was the first side to win at Moorabbin over the Saints. And in this game, Jim Reed was suspended for flattening Barry Davis and he missed the next 10 weeks, a 10-week suspension. 10 weeks suspension. Uh, Bluey Shelton of Essendon also slammed Baldock into the fence in this game, uh, which in a fracas uh, included a fan punching Bluey Shelton in the face. <laughs> a fan. Which is probably when Coleman got up out of his seat, <laughs> I'd say. <laughs> Um, in the round six game against the Roos at Coburg, the team was hurting with injuries. Um, Ray Cross was knocked out at the first bounce. But luckily into the team for this game came young uh, green shoots Barry Breen and Cowboy Neal, Kevin Neal, Kevin Neal for their first game games. Kevin Neal was the better of the two with 15 disposals, but best on ground went to John Dowling of the Saints, leading his team to a 38-point win. Then on a sunny round nine Queen's birthday weekend, they came up against the undefeated Demons. Hey, and Jeans pulled the old switcheroo for this game. He put champion fullback Verdon Howe forward and he put uh, Bob Murray back. Uh-huh. Both played crucial roles in this win. Baldock kicked four goals six while Daryl Griffiths was best on ground. Following the 61-point win over reigning premiers, Norm Smith's biggest loss to that point, Alan Jeans said, that was the day I knew I had a good side. Oh, there you go. Round 10 saw an eight-goal first quarter set up a big win over Hawthorne. Verdon Howe kicked nine goals, one for the day. Not bad for a fullback. While Ditterich and Baldock dominated. Their score of 24 goals, 12, 156 was a club record at the time. This win would see St Kilda on top for the first time since round two, 1950, and the first time this late in the season since round 13, 1939. So it's been a while. It's been a fair, it's been a fair chance. Yeah. Round 11, they took on Carlton. Uh, they were missing Ditterich and Verdon Howe, although Carlton were without Ron Barassi. The Saints then lost Ian Rowland and Ross Smith before halftime. The game was close throughout. Alan Jeans told the team, fail now and people will say you're just the same old St Kilda. Yeah. You have to convince me and prove to everyone that we are a new St Kilda. Yes. The Saints roared back to life uh, and in the contest. Scores were level up until only a minute left to play. Uh, and ex-Blue, so a Carlton player called Blue, Bruce McMaster-Smith, who had crossed to St Kilda this season, kicked the winning goal for St Kilda. They got up by a goal. Round 13 was another dominant day for Bulldog. He had 26 kicks, 8 marks, 5 handballs, and kicked 6 goals, 4, Jeez. as the Saints smashed the Swans again. They beat the Tigers, Dogs, lost again to the Bombers before finishing the season off with wins over North and Fitzroy. Ian Stewart was on fire against the Lions with 32 disposals. The Saints finished on top of the ladder for the first time ever. Smashed it. What so a year. Take, only taken them 60... 
five years, sixty yeah, something years, sixty eight years, sixty well, <laughs> sixty four plus three is sixty seven, yeah, sixty five, sixty four plus three, we're in we're in sixty five, yeah, sixty eight, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so, <laughs> so, so who who won best and fairest? I'm guessing it was probably Ian Stewart. No, it was Daryl Baldock. Oh, really? Because he yeah. still won the round, though. Well, no. So Baldock won it, and he also won their leading goalkeeper yeah, well, with 44. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. On top, I can't believe it. Uh, well, let's head, head now to Moz to hear about that Brownlow medal, which I believe was another tie. Oh. The Brownlow down low with Moz. 1965, another year of dual winners. Both players collected 20 votes this season, but at the time, and for the last time, only one player could win on count back. That lucky slash skilled man was Ian Stewart of St Kilda. The award was a surprise to Stewart, who heard about his accomplishment on the radio whilst at his girlfriend's house. He says within half an hour, an impromptu St Kilda party had been formed. This was Stewart's first of three Brownlows, and he polled in seven of the 14 matches he played. He had an incredibly high jump for a five foot ten and a half player. He could kick almost as well with his right foot as he could with his left. He could play equally as well in wet or dry conditions. And when showing off his silky skills, he always had his tongue between his teeth. There will be plenty more to say about Stuart in the next few years. Meanwhile, retrospectively, Noel Teaser Teasdale was also awarded the medal. Teasdale played in the ruck for North Melbourne and polled in nine of his 17 matches. The North skipper and dentist, Alan Aylett, retired in 1964 due to a broken arm and Teaser became the captain in 65. Teaser was the favourite to win the Brownlow this season and he says he had 60 to 70 people at his house listening to the votes being read out. Although disappointed by the countback, he says he was treated by the media as though he, he had also won the award, which was very lovely. He said the only difference was that he didn't do a lap of honour and he didn't get a medal. Until 1989, retrospectively. Teasdale became known as the man in the turban after a serious head clash in 1964 when he fractured his skull. He missed four matches, and upon his return, he was presented with one of the first head guards in football. It was made of fiberglass with a spongy part on the forehead. Teasdale says he would never have been able to play again without it. This season, St Kilda's Daryl Baldock finished on 18 votes. Um, now, in the Bunton medal, so the, the, news, the Sporting Globes yes. award, the best and fairest was the medal. The Bunton medal was also a tie. But between Daryl Baldock and Noel Teasdale. Wow. Yeah, okay. isn't that interesting? Yeah. Which now gets us two finals. To the finals. The first semi-final, Charlie. Not everyone gets a final, no. unfortunately. Well, it's been a while since that. So the, <laughs> the first semi-final, Geelong versus Essendon. In front of uh, almost 90,000 people, we've got uh, Geelong... Well, no, Essendon coming out screaming. Well, look, Essendon, the Cats were the favourite. Yeah, of course they were. Cats were the favourite. Bombers had come in with a bit, a bit of stuttering, not in the best of form. Mm-hmm. Um, but wily old John Coleman played mind games with the opponents. The opening bounce, he instructed nine of his players to line up in different positions. 
and this really confused his opponents and worked. Um, they after about five minutes they swapped back. Yeah. Um, but uh, Ken Fraser kicked an open uh, early goal to kind of get the ball rolling. Then the Cats didn't even score until late in the first quarter. Uh, three, five to two goals. Yeah. Um, that's eight scoring shots to two in the first quarter. And it was they basically, then, that was the story of the game. Yeah, and look, the Bombers had a five-goal buffer for most of the game and were never really challenged. The Bombers fans streamed happily from the ground. Fraser, Shaw, Burt and Mitchell all kicked three goals. Really spread that love around to win by 52 points. That's right. So the final score there being Geelong 7-9-51. Nowhere near good enough yeah. for Essendon's 14-19-103. Yeah. Taking us to the second semi between St Kilda and Collingwood to see who uh, was going to go straight through to that grand final, that grandest of finals. Mm. And geez, wasn't this a punch-up. All right, so this is from Russell Holmesby. This is, again, another big write-up here, so bear with me. Played before a then-record semi-final crowd of 98,395 people. In sunny spring conditions, both sides threw everything at each other, and either team could have been a worthy winner. Collingwood controlled the rucks early with Gablich beating Ditterich. A battle of the itches. Collingwood jumped the Saints in the first quarter as Magpie full forward Ian Graham got away from Saint fullback Bob Murray and kicked four goals. Jeans resisted the temptation to move Howell to the back line and it paid dividends as the champion kicked four goals six and was a constant threat in attack. Ian Stewart took control in the centre as St Kilda, oh, for St Kilda, but this was offset to a large degree by Collingwood's ascendancy on the wings. St Kilda never challenged on the scoreboard until late in the second term when Ditterich sparked them with a magnificent mark. Then, in a titanic third quarter, the lead changed seven times. Collingwood began the last quarter with a desperate lunge into attack for David Norman to goal and reduce the leeway to six points. Darrell Borlock was being covered as Ted Porter relieved the pressure and got the ball to the other end, where Graham regained the lead for the Black and Whites with a goal. St Kilda looked to be in dire straits as John Henderson increased the lead to eight points. Verdon Howe punted a desperately needed goal, then Kevin Roberts marked a kickoff and kicked high to the square, where Diderich flew high, missed the mark, then grabbed the ball and booted the goal that returned the lead to the Saints. In a tiring struggle, both sides were starting to feel the pinch. The two biggest men on the field, Ditterich and Gablich, were summoned, summoning all their reserves of energy. Collingwood kept, crept closer with a point to Graham, and the Magpies kept attacking until the final bell sounded to give the Saints a hard-fought one-point victory and a place in the grand final for only the second time in VFL history. Yes. Yeah, sorry. I mean, this when I read about this, it's like the forgotten St Kilda final. Yeah. Because I, I guess the 66 grand final overshadows everything. Absolutely. But this seems like an epic final as well. Like yeah. Again, one point difference. It's one point difference. The and lead changing six times in the third quarter. I mean, The Saints almost kicking themselves out of it as well there. Yeah, 13 goals, 24. 13-24 four to 14-17. Huge crowd. Yeah. What a, it would have been a great game to Absolutely. be at. It would have, yeah. And imagine, they, yeah. Getting into their second grand final ever, in, ever. Nineteen thirteen was the last time beating the team that beat them in the only other in the only grand final they made it to. No, Fitzroy beat them in nineteen thirteen. Oh, yeah. I thought Collingwood knocked them out. No, no, that was nineteen thirty nine, maybe. Ah, okay, but not a grand final. Ah, killer. Yeah. Which gets us to the preliminary final. It does, final. so Collingwood have to take on Essendon. Yeah, uh, and this is a very controversial game, let me tell you. So in front of 95,386 people I have it here, tell us about the controversy. Well, Len Thompson made his debut for Collingwood in this game. What a game to debut in as well. Um, but it's remembered for all the wrong reasons. So um, Essendon half-forward flanker John Somerville uh, was felled behind play in the first 10 minutes of the game. Yes, no umpire saw the incident, but Duncan Wright was the Collingwood player walking away from him. Um, here's an explanation from Duncan Wright about what happened. Somerville is down. He's been knocked out. I think Wright was the culprit. Well, on that uh, 
final day. I started on the half-back flank on a bloke called John Somerville. He started mouthing off and back-kicking me on the shins and all that nonsense. And, and he actually grabbed me on the nuts. And I wasn't too happy about that. And I said to him, if you don't stop doing that, I said, I'll do something about it. And I told him that three times, and he didn't take any notice, so he can work out what happened from there. Um, so this incident really derailed the game. Yeah, well, of course it did, yeah. And in the wrong way. I mean, it could have gone either way, uh, but the Pies fans were actually silenced. I mean, it's a pretty serious thing that's happened, and the bomber hordes booed, hollered, and yelled almost every time uh, Duncan Wright went near the ball. Yeah. And pretty much any Collingwood player, for that matter. And that vocalisation from the crowd really helped the Bombers over the line. They took a three-goal lead at quarter time, um, and then they led by... Um, 21 points and then 42 yeah. points before running it. Sorry. They led by three goals, 21 points, 42, and then one out, ran out 55-point leaders. Um, and yeah, that seems to overshadow the whole game, game as well. I mean, yeah. even, even the way I'm talking about it now. Fordham kicked six and John Burt was best on ground. Um, following the game, police action was taken as well because it was assault. Yeah. I suppose. Uh, nothing ever happened. And when, when Duncan Wright... Um, was asked asked about. It. He just said he didn't remember. He just really? he just denied everything. And that audio we heard was from him like 30, 40 years later. Yeah. So after after it all after the dust had settled, well and truly. Yeah. Yep. But here's the thing: he never played again. No, never VFL, picked in the side again. Nor uh, umpire Ron Brophy was ever selected to umpire a VFL match again. Interesting, and I wonder whether that's for the same reason. Yeah. Um, I did see that. Definitely yeah. spurred on Essendon as well. Whether they would have won this game without that spur is another thing. Yes, um, but it definitely inspired them to achieve. Go on to the next to the next week because, as we just said, yeah. So Collingwood only managed a mega six six forty two to Essendon's fourteen thirteen ninety seven. I mean, that's what twenty seven scoring shots to twelve. That's yeah, the domination. huge, absolutely. So that takes us to the grand final in front of one hundred and four thousand eight hundred and forty six people to watch St Kilda playing in a grand final for only the second time. Yeah, Can with, they beat Essendon? With all the support as well. With all, yeah, all the, uh, yeah, yep. um, all of it. But so Charlie, can they get it done? We don't need to boot up the way back when machine. No, we don't. Because this is one of those magical moments when we can actually talk to the premiership captain in real life. Isn't this fantastic? So, this is what we're getting to. Uh, so let's talk to Ken Fraser. Awesome. Well, firstly, thank you very much for taking the time. Um, so, 1965, Jack Clark handed you the captaincy. Uh, how did you feel about taking over? It came as a bit of a surprise because Jack had been a very successful captain and, uh, and was playing very well and he wasn't sort of past it by a long shot. So, I had been captain, the vice captain the year before, but was surprised that he sort of um, decided not to. But was, very, 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 very privileged, of course. Yeah. But, um, yeah, nice. So, um, going into 65, Essendon were one of the favourites and you started with three big wins. Um, was it hard to manage expectations? Because I think at this stage you guys were the, the favourites. It well could have been, but I don't think that was ever in our minds. Well, certainly from my dim memory, was no, it, it, it doesn't, it, you know, some things do burn deeply in your memory back end, so they come to the surface pretty rapidly, but it, it, there's nothing definite in my mind about uh, managing expectations. 
So did you expect to make finals? Because you, you scraped, you, you made fourth. Yeah, we, yeah we, we're always pretty confident that, you know, we, I don't think we went into a game not thinking that we wouldn't win this one. Uh, there are times when you foresee the opposition are going to be quite hard to overcome, but and it'll be a real battle. But um, I think that you know, all of the team, of course, I certainly felt that we had a chance in every match that we played. Um, and I think that was fairly common. And then, you know, we were always uh, pretty close to the team, to the other, the opposition. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that we felt we could match it with any of the other teams. Yeah, so um, you, you went up against Geelong in the first final. You guys were underdogs. But in this game, John yeah. Coleman th- swung some interesting tactics to get the jump on them. Um, can you tell us why he felt the need to swap nine players into different positions? Um, I can't really remember exactly why, except well, the comment that, um, that I could make is that Jeff, um, John was a very shrewd tactical coach. Yeah. He wasn't you know, um, the, the hot gospel type coach. Um, yeah. With him up into a frenzy and so on. He, he was a very, I mean, he, when, he, when he spoke to you, you certainly took notice when he looked at you with his steely eyes and grey. You know, but he was a very shrewd tactician. Um, and uh, I think that he, in, early in the match, Jack Clark was knocked out. Um, was a long opponent, and so uh, one of our you know, top stars was sort of really played on, but nowhere near as effective. And I think that probably his tactics this time were that well, we'll take the, you know, the we'll be jump ahead of the opposition, we'll switch players around, and so any uh, possible setups that they might have had um, that hmm. you know that would would be a bit uncertain of what was happening and uh, so I think that that was probably you know, not that Geelong were an aggressive unsociable team but certainly uh, in the year before uh, you know they ironed out our, our star captain yeah. and um, <laughs> that that could have been the reason and uh, you know I think that you know because of his tactical approach, um, that was sort of an initiative that uh, was probably fairly new in a final series. So yeah. it did work. No, it so. did. Yeah, you won convincingly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. You beat, yeah, beat, beat Geelong convincingly, which brought you to Collingwood in the preliminary final. Um, what was the mood going into that game? Well, my memory of it is that we were... Having had the good win against Geelong, that they would then would have had a good, the club had organised a good social night at the local Cross Beach Hotel on the Saturday night, so we all got together there and had a, a great night that night, and, and the, you know, the, the confidence was up, and players uh, you know, had um, sort of developed more confidence in their ability, and um, the team spirit was high, so I think we went into the the team you know, into the match against Collingwood, although they beat us in the early in the year. Yeah. I think we, we were sort of, you know, there was a, a confidence that we developed after a good win against Geelong. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so 
for me, it sort of pre-game was one of quiet confidence, I think, that we could, could beat this, you know, traditional foes or one yeah. of the traditional foes. Yep. Um, well, the I mean, the dominating aspect of this game, looking back, is the Somerville incident. Um, now, you had a big role to play as captain following that. How did you react to that, and how did you galvanise the team to stay on task? Yeah, it was one of the more memorable and unfortunate experiences that uh, my time at Essendon. And um, well, the memories of the 1958 grand final when Collingwood sucked Melbourne in and Melbourne lost sort of the plot really they were a far superior team you know through the years and they were aiming for their fourth premiership but Collingwood you know hit them hard early and it upset a lot of Melbourne blokes so that was burning in my mind at the time that no let's not get sucked in so once I'd signaled when I saw that John I went over to John and sort of gently lifted him a little bit I didn't want to lift him too hard because of you know the possible neck injury or whatever but saw blood trickling out of his mouth and his eyes were just glazed totally so signal to the umpire and the, you know, the trainers and that so when we matched well John was being carved off on the stretcher I uh, went round to as many of our players as I could to say don't get sucked in we play the ball let's not go for the man play the ball, we win it on the scoreboard, we eat up on the scoreboard, we don't eat it up like, like trying to smash the opposition. Yeah. That was my, because that 58 grand final was burning in my mind. 58 was my first season as a great 18 year old. Yeah. And that, watching it, I just thought, oh, crazy. There's a bit of a humorous part to it that um, some people might have heard before because I told them a few yeah, times yeah. over here. But, but my, my, the vice captain, Louis Shelton, who was one of our tough men, uh, he, uh, you know, I only found this out a couple of years ago <laughs> from Peter McKenna, who was centre half forward for Collingwood and playing on Louis Shelton. So, Peter was 18, playing centre-half forward for Collingwood and, and uh, he, he had a function only about four or five years ago. Peter came up and said, you remember that incident, Ken? I said, I certainly do, Peter. Yeah. He said, well, what you probably didn't know, that he said, well, I know that you came up and told all the opposition your teammates to play the ball, don't you? He said, did, did you know that your vice captain, the rugged bluey shot will follow you up and say, hit the beast, hit the head, don't put your head near the ball, son, or you'll get it kicked in. So I said, oh, crikey. But I talked to Bluey now after that. Well, Peter McKenna said he waved to the umpire and said, can you get shifted to full forward, please? That was Peter's story. <laughs> but but um, I said to Bluey, well, Bluey, did you follow me up saying that? He said, of course, Ken, I did. I said, uh, I knew what you'd be saying, but I wanted to put a bit of a fear in retribution. <laughs> <of> <laughs> and then he said, I would So I said, well, Bluey, we obviously um, were a, a good, uh, we were the forerunners of team leadership. Because, yes. you know, all those were predisposed to playing the ball and we couldn't, you know, throw a punch or that and not be upset from the normal rhythm of playing, you know, they went, they get what, but all the blokes are a bit predisposed to be, you know, hand out a bit of retribution, you know, yeah. natural part of their game, well, they had your licence, <laughs> so I said, as a, as, a team, as a leadership team, we did the right thing because we went on to win by yeah. five or six goals. So. Yeah, it was a bit of a, bit of a good cop, bad cop routine you had going. Yeah, 
Yeah. So do we then do we attribute the team's win to responding to the Somerville incident or do you think you would have won the game regardless? I think we would have won the game regardless. I think that we were in form um, and um, we, you know, and some of our players were playing the best football of their careers, like uh, Teddy Ford and Paul Ford. Oh, yeah. Big, big Brian Sampson. I mean, yeah. folks like Bertie and Clarky and so on, they, they, they're, you know, they're tremendous skills and tremendous players. But, some of the other players who were good players, once they get more confidence, then they can, you know, play not above themselves, but they can lift to a different level. Yep. And, and interestingly enough, uh, it's a little bit of an aside, but um, Brian Sampson unfortunately passed away at a relatively young age, but he played his best games in the final series. Yep. Certainly, and he had, a, he had a ripper, as you said. How did the team approach uh, playing St Kilda in a grand final, a team who was only in their second grand final ever? Yeah, interesting question. But, uh, I think that um, you know, we'd beaten them twice during the year, uh, and so we were reasonably confident in beating Collingwood. You know, the, the, the confidence grew. We'd beaten Geelong easily. We'd beaten Collingwood quite easily so the, our confidence was really high and you know folks like Samson and Ford as I said uh, Jeff Gosper and Russell Blue we, you know they were all playing really top football and exuding you know great confidence and so we beaten them twice and we also had, had more experience on the MCG. They'd only played about in the, you know, the last, the previous five years. They'd only played about three finals at the MCG and possibly played a home and away game there. Yeah. But they played there. We played eight times in the in the previous. So we'd had a distinct home ground advantage on them, and the MCG. Does get a little bit of a swirl. You know, once the wind, if it's a slightly windy day, it's, the wind does swirl around a little bit, then it gets caught in the sort of the eddies you know, around the, um, the ground. And so, um, from memory, I watched the replay oh, you know, 12 months ago, I think now, and St Kilda did kick the ball out of bounds much more than we did. Yeah. And also, we had double, nearly double, looked up the stats, and we had 75 marks and they only had 42. Yeah. So I think that we were able to judge, because of the experiences we've had on the ground, uh, home ground advantage does, well, certainly, in my mind anyway, and I think it's fairly common sense that if you know that the space you've got to run into and the, the slight wind assistance and you're able to judge your marking better. So I think that, you know, that we didn't think we were at, we think, well, I think that we felt that we, you know, had a home ground advantage over them a little bit. Too. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, now, I believe on the Friday night you had a team meeting with John, maybe at John Coleman's house or with Coleman, um, and he had some inspiring words for you guys. 
Now, the team was fighting a few injuries. Uh, Lewis Shelton wasn't going too well because of his shoulder and Brian Sampson was hiding an injured hand. Um, was there any worry they wouldn't miss out? Certainly was with Bluey. Uh, with Brian, when you read this, I thought, well, crikey, <laughs> it was hidden very well because I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah, yeah. with Bluey, it was a different story with Bluey because uh, I was rung up on the Saturday morning by the Chairman of Selectors, Harry Hunter, and uh, he said, I'll oh, come down to the surgery. Bluey and John Coleman are down here, and Bluey uh, is not really happy to play because of his shoulder. He said, Will you come down and talk to him? So uh, that wasn't far from where I lived, and so I sort of whizzed down there and uh, said, You know, sort of said to Bluey, Well, okay, Bluey, you know, he's going three quarters stick. We want you out there. You just mean so much to us, and uh, you deserve to be out there. Yeah. And um, you know, we all, we all sort of knew how strong a player and tough a player he was, and such a good player, and um, you know, a wonderful teammate. So yeah, it would have been a body blow if he hadn't have been playing for us. And so you know, I think I said something more than eighty percent of Billy Shelton. Is, uh, <laughs> is important for us to play, yeah. you know, and uh, so he did play in, and I think he probably had a couple of rejections, and in the first few minutes of the match, he took a mark on the half-back line and, you know, repelled the ball, which is, that sort of lifted my spirits, because I can see that he can play still yeah. very well. It was about the first, I think it was the first mark of the match, Okay. and, and that sort of... Um, so it seems like um, overwhelmingly the crowd would be backing St Kilda as a sentimental favourite. Was it noticeable how many St Kilda supporters there were when you took the field? No, not at all. That certainly not in my mind anyway. I think it was, uh, that we, we knew that we'd have a you know, strong contingent of supporters there anyway. So. Yeah. The fact that there might have been the public sentiment and certainly from the passionate killer supporters, uh, you know, the, 
but and public sentiment would be for the Saints to win their first, but that didn't, uh, didn't, didn't really enter my mind at the time, I'm sure, you know, it wouldn't have been a, a big factor in the, yeah. the minds of the others. I think, you know, you just you go about your business, you've been training hard all year, working hard, playing hard, uh, you know, and, and um, so that, that wasn't, wasn't an issue, I don't think it would would have been an issue with any of the other blokes either. Yeah, yeah, mentally tough. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, what was the plan to battle St Kilda's star power with players like Baldock and Ditterich and Ian Stewart and Verdon Howe? Uh, it's a good question, Tim. Again, uh, but the Darren um, Baldock, brilliant players. So they're all very good players. Yeah. Particularly brilliant, Stewart and Baldock and Dittridge was a great player, and Vernon Howe was a great player, they're all wonderful players. Uh, we had a, a young bloke who started that year called Jeff Pryor, and um, Jeff was had tremendous concentration, he was quite quick, and uh, he, I'm pretty sure he played on, uh, was shifted on to Darrell Baldock in one of our matches through the year, and his concentration and his speed. He was, was able to nullify him to a degree, and he certainly did that in the grand final. Instead of um, Bluey, Shelton didn't have the pace to keep up with um, with Darrell Baldock, uh, and so um, they probably put Jeff Pryor at centre half back, or you know, just you follow Baldock all day and yeah. nullify him as he and he did. I mean, Baldock showed a few flashes of his brilliance, but nowhere near the dominant factor that he could have been. Same with Ian Stewart, or similar, but Clarkie, Jack Clark dimmed his ability to, um, uh, again, Stewie played okay, but as did Jack. Jack was as the fittest player in the AFL, also in the VFL, yep. and superbly fit, and tremendous football, now read the play and so on, so he, he dimmed. Stewie's influence, and then our um, ruckman Brian Sampson had you know, one of his best ever games. Donnie McKenzie was a high leaper, and he could leap high, just as high as Carl Dittrich. Yeah. And then, and then Ted Fordham had a bit of bulk and strength on Burton Howell, so um, we were able to combat their probably their four best players. And the only other thing that I was, that I was going to mention was that. Um, the rooms we were in, I think the the, uh, the Melbourne club rooms uh, and the visitors team. I think we had the Melbourne. But when we came in for that, to, went to the ground and to the rooms, they were all you know the red and black streamers and all. So and that sort of lifted the spirits. But as well as that, it was quite unique. I was seeing it, you know, to me. And on a couple of tables, you know, there and. They had a couple of tables out, and they were. It was covered with this red stirred desert pea, red yeah. and black stirred desert pea. Yeah. Some some supporter, keen supporter from Western Australia, had um, in the spring, of course, when the wildflower season's on. Yeah. And they had them transported across, and there was a lot of flowers. Wow. Black, you know, red stirred desert pea. I like and it. Uh, yeah, beautiful 
wildflower as a pet. I don't know whether you've seen them, but they're red flowers and the black sort of a kernel in the middle. Yeah. And um, that was just, it, it added to the atmosphere, you know, just sort yeah, of. Yeah, I like it. it. Uh, there was that, that, and the other thing that sort of uh, that brought to mind was when it was Johnny McKenzie's 100th game, and I remember running up the race, and Macca was, um, was, you know, I started to lead them out, and then I realised, oh, it's Macca's 100th game, and that, the tradition, you know, is that you lead. lead you out. So we were arguing, no, 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 he said, you run, run to the bathroom, no, no. So we're arguing, and then all the other blokes were nearby hearing this. He said, come on, Macca, there's your toll. So Macca led us onto the field. But it, it was probably, you know, given the tension of the time, it might have just uh, taken a little bit of an edge off the, to be over the, over the, over emotional about the thing. You know, it just, sometimes um, a little bit of, I watched, I watched the first quarter last night. Conditions weren't great for footy. There was a combined 13 points in the opening quarter. Was it weather or was it nerves? What do you put that down to? I think probably nerves. You know, if, um, the weather it wasn't, it was dry because it was a hot March day. Yep. Uh, I can remember that because the next year in the preliminary final, when we played them in the preliminary final, it was quite wet and damp and I, I got Exciting, I think, in my career for me and Stuart and Bulldog played well. So the, the, the Tasmanians who were yeah. used to more. <laughs> they, yeah. But this is a dry day, a high marking day. So, uh, uh, but the, 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 it was a little bit swirly, and I think that the, the wind, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I think the wind was a factor in making it a little bit. Yeah, uh, and you guys obviously having most of you had that sixty-two experience as well to draw on, so you probably weren't as nervy. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We, we played in, as I mentioned. I think we had sort of in, in several years of finals experience, sixty-two, and yeah. then fifty-nine, sixty-two, and then yeah. sixty-four, and then so on. So we had far more finals experience on that on the MCG. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so St Kilda took a two-goal lead halfway through the second quarter and looked to be playing as a team more than Essendon did. Um, how did you guys turn it around? Uh, couldn't answer that one. <laughs> Just, it was, um, I had 
realise that that was the difference actually until you written it in the question but um, I think uh, there wasn't to me any obvious move that was made I think that we just uh, buckled down a bit more and, and you know, played on yeah, I mean... so killed the tire I don't know whether we couldn't really no, I mean two goals isn't a, isn't a huge lead, so it wasn't really a, a, something to turn around. But it seemed like bad kicking could you know could be a, a factor. You kicked five goals ten till half time. Um, was there a thought that would cost you? So what then inspired, what happened at halftime to inspire you to kick five goals to one in the third quarter and completely control the game? Dominant. I mean, five goals, eight. You kicked in that third quarter to one goal, three to completely take control of that game. It was very, you know, that's why they call it the Premiership quarter, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I might uh, fish out the. I've got the, you know, the video of it. I might fish that out <laughs> and have a look at it to see, see what I, I didn't, didn't do. I should have. Uh, oh, no, no. Uh, 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 I guess we knew that we when you talk to each other, we were a close team, you know, yeah. so I think we sort of, the team spirit came to the fore, that we knew that we'd have to lift our game and, you know, run harder, chase harder, yeah. you know, do more shepherding, you know, and all that. <coughs> so, but I don't think we lost confidence at all. I think that we still had, you know, real belief that we could win this game. Yeah. I don't think there's any stage that we felt that you know, it was beyond our winning. So uh, there wasn't any any special words that I can, as I said, you know, that, that I can remember that sort of burned in my memory of it. Yeah. That, uh, the thought the change, I think it was just uh, <laughs> maybe some sort of tired of it and uh, a few things went, went our way, but... Well, we'll have to it. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't stress too much. Um, and the, the, the Saints seemed to panic in that last quarter, and they swung quite a few changes. Um, it, do you remember what stage of the last quarter when you kind of realised, hey, we've won the premiership? No, but I do one thing that I do remember was uh, we're, we're about to kick the last goal, and we're 
I could see uh, something happened and I could see Bluey Shelton had taken a mark or somebody had taken a mark somewhere and we kicked the goal and Bluey Shelton looked across and there's Bluey jumping up with his arms in the air with great joy, you know, he's, <laughs> as if we won the match and I'm kicking very Bluey. You know, there's still five minutes to go, we're only about four goals up. Yeah. I don't think I've ever said that to him. But, but it, it, you know, it was something I said, Craig, you don't get too excited yet, but we were not there yet. You know? But he was, he'd already, he, the game was won in his mind. It was game which he'd won in his mind. That's exactly yeah. right, Jim. That sums it up well. So when the, when the siren did go, as, as the captain of the, the premiership team, what is that feeling like? memory is that it was sheer relief yeah. that we'd won you know that after all the training all the, the, the tactics the, the hard year that now we'd won and, oh thank goodness for that yeah. it was just sheer relief and, and once you got into the rooms then uh, then there was this, you know, the joy of celebration of family and friends and you know all of that teammates hugging and so on and so it was, that was that was when the jubilation sort of filled the emotions, but uh, my immediate, uh, you know, when I was holding up the cup was one of joy, but not exuberance, it was more relief. How does it compare to 62 when you weren't a captain? Is, it, is there a different feeling? Yes, there is. Uh, um, you know, you just sort of felt that, that you were the sort of um, somehow um, fortunate to be standing on a dais and uh, being presented with a cup. That's a pretty special feeling and yeah. one that you're very privileged. So, uh, um, you know, that's a sort of fairly unique experience and, uh, well, you know, and it, it, so there is that joy and um, you have the, the satisfaction, I suppose, of being the captain of a, and the privilege of being a captain of a, a, you know, a team and a, a club that's sort of one of the most highly respected clubs in the in yeah. The, the so yeah. Yeah, a different feeling. Yeah. When you you have that uh, that old. Yeah, nice. Um, so, who did you think was best on ground? Was it Ted Fordham with his seven goals, or John Burt's twenty-seven possessions, or someone else? What did you think? Yeah, I think that, that Ted deservedly uh, was the, uh, and I think most of the, the press at the time did say, I think it was. Um, Ted, uh, Ted, according to the media, Ted was, was given, I think he would have won the Norm Smith Middle seven goals yeah. and 10 to 12 marks. So he was a real focal point and uh, quite accurate and so on. And then I think the next, actually, Brian Sampson was given the next. Okay. And then and Bertie third. I think it, that, that was the way that, but again, you know, um, yeah, it's a bit subjective. That, not, well, I think Ted was clearly that was probably Ted's best ever game. And, yep. uh, it was a great focal point for us, and uh, 
strong marking, accurate kicking. Um, Seven goals was, you know, probably what, at that time, was the greatest number of goals in the grand final. Still might be. Uh, no, Gary, Gary Ablett's nine is the record now. Oh, that's right. Yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so, and then Ryan Sampson dominated in the air. And Bertie collected, you know, a huge amount of six around the ground was a great player too. So yeah. yeah. So, yeah. how do you look back on this game now, like as as a past premiership player? How is it remembered by you? Well, it's a feeling of pride, of course, um, Tim. You know, but it's uh, you know really one of good fortune. You uh, know, very thankful to to be able to be, um, you know, to have that sort of as a, a memory of, um, that, you know, I was privileged to be, uh, you know, winning premiership side and then captain of a premiership side. It, it um, is one of the, you know, outstanding features of my life. Um, yeah. Not as important as family and, you know, and so on and kids, but, um, and, you know, I was a school teacher and a school principal yeah, so you know, that also is in, you know, in priorities, you know, family, wife and family, um, yeah. probably footy and, and education, you know, I think, you know, I've done a fair bit of work for the footy club over the years yeah. in various capacities and uh, um, so, but, you know, it certainly is something that I feel very, very fortunate, very privileged I'm very thankful. And it's, winning a premiership certainly cements a, a really deep and long-lasting friendship with the players in the team. You know, we meet regularly you know, three or four times a year over the nice. last 10, 15, 20 years. Yep. Uh, as we've got older, we, we seem to meet a bit more frequently. <laughs> but to, to walk down memory lane, not the last 12 months or so because of the COVID, but... Uh, yeah. It must have been such a thrill when they found the footage of the 65 grand final again to sit down and actually re-watch it. Sadly, yeah, it was just a wonderful sort of opportunity to, to, to relive that again. And, uh, yeah, um, before I get down and dump some bit every now and then, I'll oh, say, <laughs> you know, not that it happens too often, but, but you know, it's nice to have the air to say, oh, oh yeah, all right. Mm-hmm. I'll have a look at this. Might be that they're going shortly to, to see what happened in that third quarter. Yeah. <laughs> You've given me a good reason to, <laughs> to walk, walk down memory lane a bit uh, more keenly. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm glad. Yeah. Well, Ken, yeah, thank so you so much for taking the time to talk. I, we really appreciate it, and I really appreciate hearing from you as well. Awesome, Ken. Well, look, thank you for talking. I'll, I'll let you get back to your day, but I really appreciate it. Pleasure, Tim. Keep uh, up the good work. All right, so here's some stats from that game. Essendon, seven goals to Ted Fordham. 
Massive. Grand final. Uh, Gosper 2, Samson 2, Burt 1, Fraser 1, Mitchell 1, for St Kilda, Howe 3, Baldock 2, Roland 2, Roberts 1, Smith 1. Uh, final score, Charlie, if you will. The final score there, St Kilda's 9-16-70. Not enough for, to beat Essendon's 14-21-105. I mean, you could again say St Kilda kicked themselves out of it. I mean, yeah. that's a lot of points to score. But you two, you guys also, so... 21 points True, is yeah, yeah. a hell of a lot. Um, so, it was yeah. incredibly swirly. I mean, when we talked to um, Ken about that, he talked about the, the weather being horrendous in terms yep. of wind. Um, anyway, some other winners very quickly. we got under-19, Collingwood defeating Carlton. Reserves, Collingwood defeating Richmond. Which, I mean, logically means the McClellan Trophy went to... Uh, who? Collingwood. Collingwood. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so before we get to, before we wrap this up, I just want to quickly talk about Norm Smith's legacy, Charlie. Yes. And we we talked about this last week, last episode as well. We did. Um, do you think his legacy is stronger because of what happened in '65? So this is an interesting conversation. I because think. to the every every man, every yep. woman, to, to the, the average punter. Who knows a little you, you bit know, about the history? You know that Norm Smith was sacked, but you just assume he was sacked. And that, that was, was the it. end. Yeah, but it's not it. He he coaches another two seasons at Melbourne after this before yeah. going on to South Melbourne. Yeah, but you don't really like you don't think about that. No. So and I I think even if you do, it's an interesting it's an interesting question because you feel like almost from that point where the committee have sent a letter to, to Norm in '65. They've basically cut his legs out from underneath him. Yeah. Um, and even though you know he's he's who he is, you almost feel like the period of him coaching from when he took over to '65 is when it was his team. Yeah. And then after that, even though he was still the coach, it doesn't feel as much like. It belongs to him. Does it also give him a valid excuse for why the team was so poor? I think it does. Yeah, I really do. I do. I think you know, even though it's it's his team and he's made it, he's created that team. You know, he's got no. He hasn't taken over someone else's team. It's yeah. his team. Yeah. You just you feel like maybe. Would you call a, it a schism? Yeah, without without taking anything away from the man, because he's obviously still a fantastic coach, and as we said, you know he he turns these other teams around, but it I, it does feel like his legacy, they, those two years don't belong to his legacy. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Yeah, which is really inter- It's it's an interesting moment because if it's interesting to think if he hadn't been sacked, what would have happened? So is it that that it's better to burn out than fade away? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a bit of that, isn't it? Yeah, like it's what, yeah. What would have happened? Would this t- team still have fallen apart as much as it did if he hadn't been sacked? Quite possibly. Yeah. It wasn't the team. We all, we, everyone knows it was a team that was starting to come apart, right? Yeah. It was an older team. The better, the best players were too old or starting to retire. Yeah. But he's all, he gets a pass on it almost because of what happened. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because most coaches don't get that choice. Very, no. very few coaches, Checker Hughes being the exception, yeah. get to walk away as like as champion coaches. coaches. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, Check, did Checker Hughes tarnish his legacy by coaching that one extra <laughs> that game? That one game. The one time he coached and retired not having won a premiership? <laughs> the only time. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting thing and I think um, obviously... 
Norm Smith's uh, legacy is not done. And she's incredible. And even if you do look at it that way, um, it hasn't changed anything for him. But to to look at it, you're absolutely right. The everyday everyday um, person doesn't know that he continued coaching after that. Yeah. So yeah, something to think about. He's got a diff- He's definitely got a different uh, aura around him because of the sacking. I think it play it plays a huge part in in his legacy. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Very interesting. All right. Well, let's uh, let's wrap this up. Let's start with some retirees, Charlie. Yes. So finishing off in sixty five, we have Brian Pert of Fitzroy, one hundred twenty five games, eighteen goals. Ray Slocum of Fitzroy, one hundred twenty one games, forty seven goals. Mervyn Hobbs, 74 games, 115 goals. Ken Turner at Collingwood, 170 games, 56 goals. Melbourne's John Lord, mm-hmm. 132 games, 80 goals, four flags. Ian Bluey Shelton going out the best way possible, 91 games, two goals, two flags. Last game was a flag. Yeah, love that. Uh, Colin Uren of Hawthorne, 135 games, 34 goals, one flag. Carlton's Brian Buckley, 116 games, six goals. And Jim Frosty Miller of Carlton, he only played 11 games, kicked 29 goals, but he would go on to become a VFA legend, hence why I'm mentioning him. Nice. Uh, so let's wrap this up, Charlie. Let's talk about it, okay? Who got the wooden spoon? Uh, wooden spoon was Hawthorne, their 11th wooden spoon. Yes, and... Their first since 1953. And their last as of now. Hey, yeah. I mean, they're in contention in 21. Yeah. The, That's they a very have, good point, Charlie. They haven't had one since. That's a very good point. Interesting. They now have more flags and spoons. Well, good on them for turning that around. Yeah. Because <laughs> it wasn't looking yeah, good for a long time. Uh, who won the premiership in uh, 65? Essendon, 35-point winners over St Kilda. It certainly was. Now, Tim, I want you to ask me who the leading goal kicker was because I've got a stat for you here, which I love. Charlie, who was the leading goal kicker? Thank you for asking, Tim. Uh, it was John Peck of Hawthorne with yes. 56 goals. So he is the third player to win goal kicking when his team won the wooden spoon. But he's the first to do so since... The great man, Roy Park. Roy Park of University in 1913. Is Favol the only other one? Or Jeremy Cameron? Did someone... I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Um, and now we have stats. I can also tell you he kicked the most behinds. Oh, okay. Uh, it was a three-way tie. Peck, Fordham and Bulldog all kicked 46 behinds. <laughs> don't know, what, what would we call that medal? <laughs> I, just, I don't know. <laughs> who, who kicked a lot of points? Do you go a lot of points or like... Memorable points. I mean, Barry Breen in 66 gets a pretty memorable point. <laughs> yeah. Let's have a think. Let's, let's, uh, we'll let's come back it. to that. Brownlow medals. The, Illists. the Brownlow medalists were uh, Ian Stewart of St Kilda with 20 votes and Noel Teasdale yeah, of North so Melbourne. So Stewart winning on count back, but obviously Teasdale getting awarded that respectively. Yes. Um, yeah, and the reserves premiership. We talked about that. Collingwood. We did. It was won by Collingwood. Yeah. <laughs> um, highest score of the season, the Coulthard Shield, if you will, the yeah. award uh, was Richmond twenty-three goals, twenty one hundred and fifty-eight. The McCracken Name Award. Yes. Okay. Kaz, 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 there's a lot of options here, and I'm, I'm surprised he's gone with this, and especially his reasoning. Okay. What's he, who's he gone with? He's gone with Kevin Bartlett. Okay. I mean, a crazy name uh, because his neighbour's golden retriever is called Kevin. <laughs> Okay, and Kaz has officially lost it. I I probably would have given it to, if it was me, probably Peter Patterson. 
Yeah, it's good. Peter Patter. Good alliteration. Yeah. Love it. Peter Patter. Yep. Um, here you go. Premiership tallies of, as of 1965. Okay. Collingwood on top with 13. Essendon alphabetically second with 12. Melbourne with 12. Carlton with 8. Fitzroy 8. Geelong 6. Richmond 5. South Melbourne 3. Hawthorne 1. Footscray 1. There we go. Yeah, we're about to get a new member of that list as well. Yes. We certainly are. A member that's going to stay down the bottom of it for quite a long time. Yep. So there's 65. I know, pivotal. Pivotal 65 seasons. Huge. Everything changes. Yeah, you look at the clubs that are on the way up and then the clubs that are on the way down. Yeah. Very interesting. Yep. Well, what a time what to be a time alive. What a time to be alive, indeed. <laughs> So Charlie, next time we record, you will have a baby. Yes, I as will. Well, cause I you will. Are, you know, expecting. We haven't mentioned that. No, we haven't. Yes, yeah. I will. Your little demons on the way. Another one. Another another person to bring into the perpetually disappointing fold. Theory. <laughs> no, we'll see. It could be a great year to be born as a demon supporter. It could. It could be the only premiership you ever win, and she'll. <laughs> Dad, why did you make me go for the demons? <laughs> Just like my father. Yes. Yeah. So I'm just trying to work out which demons play you're going to name her after. <laughs> Whether you go like a little checker or a little, a little Ivor. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. A little Chadwick. <laughs> the Chadwick a girl's name? I don't know whether you can turn any of these into girls' names. Mm. But we'll see what we can do. Okay. But uh, yes, very exciting. But I'm almost as excited to talk about 1966. Which is weird I'm because not. you've always poo poots and killed her. You always. No, I love them. I loved. I love them. <laughs> I love them. It's always, had, it's always good to have a team that's worse than you, isn't it's it? It's going to be an exciting... It's What an exciting year to talk about, and there'll be so much oh, info to talk there about. So if you're a St Kilda supporter out there, make sure you are... Or you know a St Kilda supporter. Yes. Who, who finally wants to listen to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> make sure you put this one out there, and uh, please keep on recommending us. And give us a... If you could, if you can, if you get five seconds, give us a little review, because it helps other people find us as yeah. well. So uh, that'll be fantastic. But until uh, 66... Hooroo. I've been everywhere Cause I've been everywhere man I've been everywhere man Cross the desert's bare man I've breathed my- Hello and welcome Let's start the VFA And continuing on from the grand saga that was prominent during last year that uh, saw um, that had issues with Moravin being disbarred and the rumours circling around Preston a similar situation occurred in the lead-up to the 65 season, uh, this time involving North Melbourne wanting to move to Coburg Oval. So this started middle of last year with North Melbourne in talks with the Coburg City Council, where the council had a, wanted North Melbourne to move there in a long-term deal and had promised to build a new grandstand to make, it, to make the grand uh, VFA, uh, VFL approved. And uh, there were talks about North Melbourne and Coburg Football Club amalgamating uh, where their players, where the Coburg players would be invited to a practice and training and a percentage of the administration and board being moved over to North Melbourne. Uh, this fell through as Coburg wanted to stay within the VFA and ended up leasing uh, or subleasing Port Melbourne's football ground. Uh, with Port Melbourne, and North Melbourne ended up staying in Coburg for that's this season and then moved back to Arden Street. Also, Footscray attempted unsuccessfully to move to Skinner Oval, 
which is Sun Sunshine's newly developed ground. We also have a new team entering the association this year with the Werribee Football Club joining Division 2, playing its games at Churnside Park. Five other clubs had, uh, had applied unsuccessfully, being Baronia, Chelsea, Frankston, Keylor and Ringwood. The association had also been in favour in admitting Frankston, but the club failed to get a clearance from the Mornington Peninsula Football League, so it was unable to make the move. Also in the lead-up to the uh, season, Brighton Caulfield changed its name to Caulfield, dropping the Brighton aspect of it, and as it wanted to better represent the Caulfield area, as most of the Brighton members and supporters had already drifted away. But under its hyphenated name, it found it uh, was considered more strongly associated with Brighton, hence the drop. Uh, the club further severed its connection with Brighton I with Brighton's identity by adopting a new uh, white and navy blue hoops jersey and adopting the Bears as the nickname. <clears throat> Waverley won its first flag by beating Port Melbourne by two goals. Leading goalkeeper for the season was Sandringham's Dennis Oakley, kicking 77 goals during the year. And the JJ Liston Trophy was awarded to Alan Poor of Waverley. Uh, who ki- uh, who polled 28 votes. In Division 2, Preston won their second DV2 flag, beating Morty Alec by 58 points, and were welcomed back into Division 1 uh, next year. And Geelong West, uh, finishing last in DV1, has been dropped back uh, in next year's season. The leading goal kicker was Johnny Walker from Preston, kicking 108 goals in the home and away season, adding an adding eight more overall during finals. And the DV2 best in fairest was won by John Bradbury of Mordialic, who polled 37 votes. Still in Victoria, in the VAFA, Uni Blacks had been in Coburg by 49 points and winning their 12th VAFA flag since being disbanded from the VFL. Melbourne High School Old Boys, uh, John F. Nelson won back-to-back JN, JN Woodrow medals with, again, 48, uh, with 18 votes. Alan Hooper won the leading goal-kicking award with 54 goals for the Uni Blues. Across the border to the Sandful, Central District's midfielder Gary Window has won, has won the McGarry medal with 16 votes. Leading goalkeeper was Norwood's Ian Brewer with 96 goals. And Port Adelaide won their 23rd flag by beating Sturt by three points. Now across the Nullarbor in the Waffle, Swan District's Bill Walker won his first stand over medal for Perth with 24 votes. Subiaco's Austin Robinson won back-to-back Bernie Naylor medals, kicking uh, winning his third overall with 108 goals. East Freire won their 23rd flag, beating Ladder Leader Swan Districts by four goals. And East Freire's Dave Emery won the Simpson medal for best of field. Across the straight in the TFL, uh, Glenarchy won their ninth flag, beating North Hobart by 31 points. And in the top end in the 65-66 season of the NTFL, St. Mary's won their sixth flag, beating uh, Nightcliff by 37 points. 
and the Wanderers Rusty Marie won this year's Nichols Medal. Thank you and have a great night. To find out more about the Kick to Kick team and the sources we use, visit our website www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kicktokickpod. Thanks so much for listening.